0: Hi, and welcome to the Circle of Film podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into the 2010 Circle of Film Awards in today's episode. What's this? What's this? The simply sensational standing a of Royal Dalton Music Hall. What is this? this is what, you be. what is At long last, I finally finally made it possible to do this episode Uh, Originally, my schedule was such that I was going to do one of these every three months uh, With the exclusion coming, uh, including the current active year So uh, 2011 was going to be in like May, and then three months later you would have uh, this one in, what would that be, August, I think, and then I would get twenty, not 2009 in November, a month ago, then I'd have 2019 at the normal time, uh, you know, just before Oscars came out, and then I could do the first thing, the next one after that would be the 2010's decade uh, episode, however, um, various things got in the way of that, uh, part of that is my own uh procrastination, but yeah, that that really never didn't really pan out at all. So, what we're left with is doing 2010 now. We will do 2019 as previously planned. Uh and then one nice thing is we don't get the 2009 episode until after the 2010s decade. Uh so at least there's no kind of whiplash there. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to doing the 2010s as a decade, using all the winners from every year that I've had, and seeing how they stack up, because I've never really contextualized it and thought about it in that, in that way before. So, looking at 2010. Uh, this is almost 10 years ago now. It, it seems so, so close, uh, and yet it is so, so far away. Uh, back then, we had 10 Oscar nominees for Best Picture, Um, with the King's Speech ultimately winning. King's Speech would go on to win four awards that night including director, actor, and screenplay. Uh, Inception would tie it with four wins although its would be for sound editing, sound mixing, cinematography, and visual effects. Uh, The Social Network would take home three awards for adapted screenplay, score, and film editing the fighter would grab supporting actor and supporting actress in this instance supporting actress would be uh, Melissa Leo over Amy Adams and Toy Story 3 would take home animated feature and best song. And you got a couple others. Uh, I think the other the only other multiple winning film was Alice in Wonderland for production and costumes and the other big 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 award was Black Swan winning actress. So a lot of stuff, a lot of great stuff. There's some really, really good films. And, you know, it. Toy Story 3 was nominated for Best Picture, which is incredible. They don't recognize animated films enough. I believe it was the third film to be nominated after WALL-E, or after UP the year before, and Beauty and the Beast back in the early 90s. So there was a lot, a lot going on. It was the second year uh that they had the expanded Best Picture slate and it's it's a really fascinating Oscar year. It was The King's Speech versus The Social Network. And I don't know, I, you know, I think you look back on it now and and obviously I think a lot more people re- remember and recognize The Social Network as the greater film and the one that had the greater impact, but I rewatched The King's Speech earlier this year, um, and I don't, I don't know, it's not great, uh, but it's got some really fine elements to it, I think Colin Firth and Jeffrey Rush are very, very good in the film, um, and so, you know, as, as much as I think a lot of people, uh, enjoy ragging on it, in a sense, it is a good and and well-made film, and, um, Deserved some recognition. I would go not. I would not go so far as to give it anywhere near the level of recognition that it got at the Oscars. But that's just me. Uh, one of the big films from from twenty ten that got completely shut out at Oscars uh, from wins at least was True Grit. Came in with ten nominations, left with nothing. And uh, one hundred and twenty seven hours was nominated six times and got nothing. So you know a lot of a lot of unfortunate circumstances that that happened there for 2010 i watched a bunch of films uh that i it had been a long time since i'd seen i tried to catch up with as many new films as possible and i say this every time i do one of these episodes but i can't possibly watch everything and you know who can if if not me who and uh so that's why there is the Um, Honorary Oversights, uh, which I only do for current active years. So there aren't any, there won't be any for this episode, but there will be some, or at least one. I think I do a maximum of two uh, for the 2019 episode when we get to that. Uh, The other thing that I do for all of the the Circle of Film Award episodes is you intro the the episode proper with a... uh, edited version of the best song nominees into a sort of pseudo introduction. I've done that again this year uh, with this year's original song nominees. So without any further ado, without any further ado, let's jump in to the original song nominees and also the 2010 Circle of Film Awards. I'm with you <laughs> To the 2010 Circle of Film Awards 10 awards will be given out In this episode As is customary And as is also customary The order in which these awards are given out Is not always uh, The same from year to year The only things that remain static In their in the order Is song will be the 6th award Given out and picture will be the last award Given out To start off the 2010 Circle of Film Awards we have the award for best screenplay. And the nominees are. Jesse Armstrong, Sam Bain, and Christopher Morris for Four Lions. Michael Bacall and Edgar Wright for Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Valerie Beaugard, Valerie Beaugrand-Champagne and Denny Villeneuve for Incendies. Deborah Granik For Winter's Bone, and Aaron Sorkin for The Social Network. As is also customary with these episodes, if you are not familiar, uh, after the nominations are announced, I will now, I will go through each uh, nominated film, uh, screenplay, person, scene, whatever it may be, song, and, uh, Kind of just justify why it is in the position that it is So starting at 5 and working our way to 1 Or for the acting categories, 10 to 1 And uh, that's what we're going to do So number 5, the number 5 screenplay this year Is the Armstrong, Bane, Morris screenplay of Four Lions Four Lions is a great film It it does so much that is fascinating, uh, hilarious uh, And just bizarre you know coming out in 2010 with the subject matter that it has is very cha- it's very daring it's very confident it's very challenging and it's a type of film that does not succeed without an incredibly tight screenplay it is bolstered by some pretty great performances but the screenplay itself is is really has to be on point or it all kind of just falls apart and thankfully, it has a great screenplay it, it's, it's really, really good And you get completely, at least I did I was completely won over by these charming characters Despite the fact that they're attempting to be, if poorly, terrorists You know, and, and screenplays in the past have made us sympathize uh, With a lot of different villains, a lot of different characters, a lot of different people and I don't think that that should exclude uh, terrorists, or if if that extends to somebody like a Hitler or something like that, like there's going to be a movie that makes that you know a thing that makes us feel compassion, feel um, understanding for these types of characters. And Four Lions does that. We, you know, the you, it makes you connect to these people and care about them and and want i guess want them to succeed might be a, a stretch too far but but want them to to find a better avenue to channel their passions is probably more accurate uh so that is is kind of where it lands for me um it's fifth uh because it's not i don't know it, it doesn't quite go over the top i think the other four screenplays on this list uh in addition to being absolutely competently written and, uh, you know, successfully entrenching us in the world of their films, I think they all do something a little more, they go a little further than what is, th- than, than just being great. And I think Four Lions is the, is the only one of the five that kind of just stops a little too short, uh, for me, at least. So, my number five, Jesse Armstrong, Sam Bain, and Christopher Morris for Four Lions. Number four, number four is Michael Bacall and Edgar Wright's Scott Pilgrim versus the World. This, I, I didn't rewatch this uh, in preparation for doing this episode, but I rewatched a lot of scenes from this movie, uh, looking for you know seeing if it contended for best scene and, and whether it should contend for acting categories and, and so on and so forth, and it, it just it's so much fun, Edgar Wright and i think he's proven this you know time and time again with all of his films just has such a great way of constructing a film and while i think scott pilgrim of all the movies that he's made is is kind of supported in that from from the source material uh more so than say Shaun of the dead or or baby driver and so forth he, he just he integrates his film with the music with the sound with uh with the atmosphere with the animation with the comic book um stylings uh, in in a perfect perfect way the the coins that appear when Scott de- defeats an evil x the points the extra life you know all these different aspects are something that seem insane like you know the, 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 there's no movie quite like this and i think that's such an incredible compliment to to him to film that that he's able he was able to make something this unique, this special, this you know, the the way he just c- constructs a scene in this movie is is so far so far removed from how uh any of the other films on this list in this year that I've seen in general are generally constructed. Um and I think that has a a lot to do with the way it's it's written and the way it's adapted from its source material. You know, this is it. Just it, it just it works on on so many different levels. The dialogue is is snappy and witty, and uh, you know makes a lot of. It makes great use out of the talents of its cast. Uh, they they. Almost, fe- it feels like so many of these parts were written with these people in mind, and you kind of have to, I, at least I have to kind of remind myself sometimes, like, no, this is a story that already existed, and, uh, you know, he went out and found the right people for these parts, and, and that's why it, it's so well shifted, and, and I never read the source material, I don't know if there were any liberties taken, and, and if any, many, and, and, you know, how long... You know, I'm sure there were some differences. It can't possibly be, you know, literally pulled from the page. But man, it, it a movie like this, a story like this that is so bonkers, that is so over the top, and yet Edgar Wright is able to strip it down and, and really make it feel human. You know, Scott Pilgrim as a character is so Somehow uh, relatable and 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 down to earth, despite the fact that like the finale of this film involves him pulling a sword out of his chest and gaining the power of self of like love and the power of self respect and, and all that kind of stuff. It, it's just crazy. It's crazy that those two things somehow live in harmony in a movie like this. Um, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World is is a very, very interesting movie. And I think it obviously uh gets a lot of help from Edgar Wright's direction, from the the performance of the cast, from the way that the effects are, are interlaid throughout the film. But I think the screenplay is the one of the more one of the most fundamental parts of it and um one of the biggest reasons why it's successful and why it's good. Number four, Scott Pilgrim. Versus the World, Number Three, Best Screenplay. Deborah Granick Winters Bone. This is a movie I did rewatch fairly recently. It has been a long, long, long time since I saw it. Um, Winters Bone, as a story, is a very curious one, because it is a it is very Solemn, it is very bleak, and getting us to buy into this this sort of <sighs> it's it's almost as if the world that we're in when we're when you're watching Winter's Bone is that of of it, it just so far removed from typical society anywhere that I'm familiar with in America that it really does it kind of feels like a fictionalized place a fictionalized uh, country a fictionalized world to a to a small degree and that's and so writing it that way and then you know adjusting it and and making it still feel close enough to real life and and writing these characters in such a way that you can still connect to them you can still connect to John Hawks you can still connect to Jennifer Lawrence, you can still connect To all these people and It becomes Their story More so than this this Places story, you know, this one Big family with all these Different, you know, branches Reaching out and The the complicated Structure of hierarchy Within this family from You know, as, as Jennifer Lawrence pursues Her father and his disappearance And where he might be and And From the very beginning, it's this, everyone, you get this idea, sense that everybody knows. Everybody except Jennifer Lawrence knows exactly what's happened, exactly what's going on. And yet the film still takes two hours to reach the point where Jennifer Lawrence knows what's going on. And can, you know, satisfactorily use that information to her own benefit. Uh, Which is... It seems like it takes forever. It seems like this should be the slowest film. It seems like it should be boring. It seems like you know it's just not worth making into a movie in some sense, and yet I think it absolutely succeeds on all of those levels. I think it becomes this incredibly engaging uh narrative of not just a quote unquote like who done it what happened to Jennifer Lawrence's father but her, about her character and the strength and weakness that she has to uh, gain and overcome throughout this movie about the relationships that she has and develops and loses with Dale Dickey with John Hawks throughout the film with her own kids with her you know this that and the other with the police with the rest of the family and I think the writing is so successful in creating this um, atmosphere and creating this narrative that becomes it's that much more than just a character study piece, just a whodunit, just a uh, you know X, Y, and Z. It's all of those things. It able, it, ab- it able, it's able to layer all of those aspects of this story one on top of each other uh in a in a in a way that doesn't they don't work against each other they work in conjunction with each other they work in harmony they they move together they they combine to form something so much greater than these individual segments and i think um as much credit as i can i can lend to some of the other aspects of the film i think the screenplay is absolutely a major major strength um, and Deborah Granick uh is is a fantastic writer, not just Winner's Bone. You know, she's she's had a great uh subsequent follow-up films to this movie. And uh I I'm very impressed by Winner's Bone and, and going back and rewatching it uh really opened my eyes to how impressed I was and why I was so impressed when I first saw it, which, you know, I kind of forgotten after Nine years and and however many Thousands of films that have passed in between Those two watches So number three Winter's Bone Number two The runner up for best screenplay In 2010 Is Aaron Sorkin For The Social Network Man It is so close Numbers one and two this year for screenplay Are so close Sorkin I love Sorkin. I think he's incredible. His dialogue, his walk and talk, his characters uh, are just so uh, viscerally written. They are so etched in stone. And, you know, you can get some incredible exchanges and, and conversations in his movies. And the social network is one of, if not the best examples of something like that. Uh, there's a reason it. You know, it won uh, screenplay at the Oscars, and I, I think it absolutely deserved it, and should have. You know, uh, Sorkin. I, I love Sorkin. This isn't the first time I've nominated Sorkin. Uh, even, you know, it's it's. You know, I've he's won before for me. You know, I think he won. What was it? Steve Jobs. He wrote it. It's. I'm I'm always going to be drawn to a script that Sorkin writes. I'm always going to be attracted to what he does. He he gives his characters even the ones that you don't like uh, as much as, you know, Timberlake and Eisenberg are at points in that film absolute assholes, just people you cannot stand, can't believe you you could ever, you know, that these people are the ones holding up this whole movie, that this is the protagonist, this uh, this unlikable bastard of a character. And yet because it's Sorkin's writing and because that those are the words coming out of his mouth, it becomes that much more enjoyable. It becomes so easy to just just let yourself sit back and let this beautiful dialogue just wash over you. And I think Sorkin, if there's any weakness in Sorkin's writing, it's the stuff outside of. The dialogue. I, I think his characters have a little, couple of issues here and there. Uh, you know, more not as noticeably in The Social Network. I don't think, but in some of the other screenplays he's written, and uh, I think it becomes a little questionable. But I mean, there's no one on his level with dialogue. I, I would, I would put him well above Tarantino. Uh, the only person I would even. Come, you know, mentioned in the same breath that I could think challenges him uh, for me is Linklater at this point. Uh, and their styles are just so wildly different that, you know, it's a very, very difficult, you know, measuring contest. So I love Sorkin. I think he wrote an incredible screenplay for the social network. And um, it's a shame that I can't give him the win this year because of this other film that came out. So, Number two, best screenplay for 2010 is The Social Network, which means the Circle of Film Award for Best Screenplay in 2010 goes to Valerie Beaugrand Champagne and Denny Villeneuve for Incendies. I rewatched Incendies for this episode. Uh, there were a lot of details about that movie that I did not remember, and I am so glad I did because I think this is. Just, I read recently somebody talking about the plot of a film and how if your movie hinges on a premise, if it hinges on you know a plot twist or a, a reveal like the Sixth Sense uh, or something like that, then it's very very easy for that movie to be bad. It's very easy for that movie to kind of fall. You know, you pull the thread of that twist, and the rest of the film kind of unravels behind it. You know, if if your movie is all about I see dead people, uh, once you have that knowledge, the movie, and you know, a lot of the times, a movie like that falls apart. Incendies is a movie that absolutely has an incredible twist uh, at the end of it, and yet, despite that. It still features uh, one of the most compelling stories uh, in a film that I've ever seen. It follows, you know, the structure of it is is brilliant, uh, showing both the present and the past at the same time. Uh, follow, you know, we're learning just as our characters are learning what happened in the past to their mother, and I think getting that perspective in that way draws you into who these people are it draws you into this world this fictitious middle eastern uh, landscape and this you know this these conflict this uh, you know religious and uh, ethnic conflict um that that becomes so entrenched in who these people are you know these are to the the twins uh, who kind of bookend the film and it's you know them discovering what happened to their mother and and father and their journey their discovery is is the story right it's you know in a movie with a huge twist like a lot of the times the twist becomes the story but it's not i think villeneuve and uh and Beau Grand Champagne, what they're able to do with this screenplay is somehow, and I, you know, I'm not sure exactly how they did it, but they're able to take this giant twist, this this huge thing, reconst- reconstruct the narrative and edit it in such a way that when we see it play out in, a, in the film, when we see it play out, uh, as depicted as presented it becomes so much more than just the twist it becomes so much you know we're following these ma- these characters the twins and their mother primarily through all of these different ordeals learning all this information and because you know the the, the script does such a great job of rooting their personalities um, I think a lot of credit can be lent uh, be left on the shoulders of the actors. I think they do a fantastic job of just showing this the screenplay and listening to it and, and adhering to it and, and following through with it. And I think they' they know that this is a movie that's about so much more than its twist. And I think the movie, if you didn't have the twist, becomes. It's still a fascinating film filled with, you know, very dramatic moments, very tense moments, very uh, destructive moments, and very, at times, even like, awkwardly funny moments that feel natural, feel feel real, feel human. And I think what, and then that I think is the biggest reason why it ends up just eking out over. Sorkin's social network is as amazing as Sorkin's dialogue is. Uh, And I think his dialogue is definitely better than the dialogue in Incendie's. uh, But I think Sorkin always tends to have his characters come off as a little manufactured. I think that's a weakness that he has. And he's generally able to overcome that weakness personally i think and but when when somebody else can do that can uh when that is a strength of someone else's writing it it absolutely elevates uh the film around it and and the screenplay is that point is that reason it's why these characters are so real it's why they're so human it's why you can connect and relate and understand them it's why you care about their journey it's why you care about their life and their 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 family and relatives and relationships and everything. And I think that all stems back from the writing for from between Villeneuve and Beau Grand Champagne for Incendies. So for me, best screenplay 2010 Incendies. Best screenplay. It's 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 really good. It's really really good. Alright, moving on to the next category Next category for this year We're going to move on to Best special effects So, like I have to do every year That I do this uh, Best special effects in this instance Loosely translates to a conglomeration Of visual effects, animation Film editing And cinematography Uh, It is those uh, Conjunctions Um, It also kind of includes sound editing and sound editing more than mixing. I guess the way I kind of think of it is, it's all the stuff that happens after the film is actually shot, and it's all the stuff that doesn't happen in front of the camera. It's you know where the camera is positioned, uh, how the cam- how the footage is edited together, all the stuff that's added in later, like the visual effects, everything that's drawn, everything that's CGI'd, uh, whether that's visuals, sound. Uh, And so on, all the, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Special effects. This year's nominees for Best Special Effects are Black Swan, Inception, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, The Social Network, and Toy Story 3. We will start with number five, and it is Scott Pilgrim versus The World. Number five, special effects. Uh, So, one of of the things about this category that often uh, becomes this very strange thing that I have to compare these two aspects uh, against each other is that this category ends up having... Generally, each year there's at least one animated film, and the rest of the films don't have animation in them. And so it's really difficult for... Me to compare something like, um, you know, like Toy Story three against The Social Network. The social Network has zero animation in it, and Toy Story three is all animation, and so it's a balancing act. Well, okay, if Toy Story three has the best animation, how does that compare to a film that has, you know, say the best cinematography, the best film editing, and best visual effects? You know, you have to look at the other categories, and then that often that's where the animated films kind of lose out. Uh, Scott Pilgrim is interesting in that it has visual effects. They're good. They're not exceptional, but they're good. Uh, it has a lot of great film editing. I think Edgar Wright excels. Uh, his films are fantastically edited time and time again. He's so, he works so well in conjunction with music that he, that he fills his films with. Uh, they, have really, they have good cinematography. Uh, it's not, I wouldn't call it exceptional cinematography, but it's very good. Uh, but interestingly, Scott Pilgrim has animation. There are animated sequences in this film. There are comic pages that we see. Um, there are, uh, you know, video game effects that are animated within this movie. And I think that element alone is what ultimately pushed it into the five slot. I think, uh, I'm trying to remember, I think it was doing battle with Harry Potter Deathly Hallows Part One for this last spot and uh the animation in my opinion is what ultimately puts it over the top to make it in this category uh because it had some and you know it's less so that it's less that the animation in this is is exceptional or incredible and it's i mean it's not it's not bad animation but it's the fact that the animation is able to be integrated into this movie at all and work and be successful like that that is uh, a very much a, a impressive result. So, Scott Pilgrim versus the World, I think, gets in primarily on its film editing, but uh, absolutely rec- has that additional animation to to kind of push it over the top. Um, yeah, uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World, second nomination of the night. Number four is Black Swan. Black Swan. And I, more and more, uh, ever since I started doing this category, the uh, the nominees for it have a, somewhat shifted into more of the kind of dramatic, uh, quote-unquote, awardsy movie fare. Uh, a lot of that is, you know, kind of maybe me placing a little extra emphasis on the cinematography film editing side of the coin, but... Uh, I mean, and that's the kind of the situation here with Black Swan, I think the editing in Black Swan is superb, I think the cinematography in Black Swan is really, really good, uh, the visuals are fine, uh, they're they're solid, they're not, you know, they're not going to break the bank, they're not, you know, overtaking the film, but, you know, you look at the wings on an Allie Portman when she's performing towards the end of the film, and um, sort of the the haziness that this film employs and features, and uh, it goes hand in hand with the cinematography the way these everything is shot, the way you know we get these different angles we get these different uh perspectives on each all of these scenes um you know the way the camera revolves around natalie portman uh you have to rely on the cinematography in this film uh to showcase your character. As she goes through this mental breakdown As she, you know, destroys herself that way uh, There's the scene where We end up with two Natalie Portmans On the same scene I can't remember if we ever get them in the same frame um, I do not remember I think in, in, You know, we might, we might not It might be like one fa- uh, front side of a Natalie Portman And one back side of a Natalie Portman Which isn't actually a Natalie Portman; it's somebody else. And um, suffice to say, like a moment like that uh, in a film that doesn't use a lot of visual effects, uh, can really has a very good chance of of you know could throw you out of the movie. And it doesn't. I think Black Swan, Fincher's able to. He keeps everything so tight and so concise. Throughout his film And um, it's a a big credit to the editing Big credit to cinematography Little additional kudos to the visual effects department as well Number 4 for 2010 is Black Swan Number 3 is the aforementioned Toy Story 3 like I said, uh the animation in this, you know, you're going up in a year against, say, Tangled, How to Train Your Dragon, The Secret World of Arrietty. a lot of great animated films from 2010. Uh, but man, Pixar is is just so unstoppable. Uh the Toy Toy Story 4 just came out this this year, uh, you know, nine years later. And the animation in Toy Story 4 is exceptional. The animation in, in Toy Story 3. Uh, you know, I rewatched it prior to watching the fourth episode, fourth fourth film, and man, it it just holds up so well. The fact that they're able to get and then this is kind of the crux of it. Animation has a lot of weight in a film, and it's it's a lot is being asked of it in all these movies. You need to not only create the entire world that these that these movies take place but you have to create and craft these characters in such a way that they fit into a world that is animated and that they emote in a way that is human in a way that is real in a way that we can connect to and that part of it is so difficult so many films fail to pull that off uh I'm looking at like The Lion King this year it is a stunning visual achievement. And I think on that raw, purest and rawest of levels, it is impossible to deny just how Im- Im- incredible they did with how realistic those lions, those creatures, those animals, Africa looks. But where it fails, and, and I think the biggest part of why that movie is not good, is that it fails to relate... The realistic environment that it's portraying, with these animated CGI characters, into something that we can connect with, into something that emotes in a way that is realistic, and and I think a lot of people say like, "What is realistic?" That's how they would emote, but the problem is like we're 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 elevating these characters to quote unquote, you know, we're anthropomorphizing these animals into humans. "Quote unquote, they are voiced by humans. They are given human characteristics, human stories, human um, relationships, and yet their faces, their their, in some cases, their voices, their their the animation of them is not human. It does not match what's around it that way. And I think you know that is its failing. Toy Story three does not have that failing. Woody and Buzz and Jesse and all these other characters, they feel so real. They, they there are characters in this franchise that feel more human than actual human characters in other movies and other franchises. And that is absolutely uh, you know, you can absolutely put that credit on the voice performances. And I, I think that's you know, they have a lot to do with it, but the animation is that is that is the focal point that is the the period that is the groundwork that is the support that is the the frame of these these films and why they are so successful and why they come why we keep coming back to them again and again and again. So uh, for me, Toy Story three some of the best animation. I mean, the best animation of its year, and uh, some of the best animation uh, even now. It, it looks great. So my number three From 2010 for special effects Is Toy Story 3 Which brings us to our runner-up And uh, unfortunately it is once again The social network Uh, There's really not much, if any, visual effects Used in this film If there are, they're very small They're very tiny And um, integrated uh, impossibly to see, there's really no animation So it doesn't have either of those categories going for it But the film editing I think it, it's Outstanding uh, The cinematography Is beautiful um, You know you, you come up with uh, These I don't know There's these scenes This is kind of part of what I'm uh, Oh my goodness Peer pause, uh, sorry, I accidentally attributed Fincher to Black Swan when that is absolutely Aronofsky. Uh, Darren Aronofsky is the director of Black Swan. Fincher did social network. Wow. Uh, totally missed that. Um, anyway, yeah. The the cinematography and the film editing in the social network is pretty impressive. It, you know, in conjunction with Sorkin's screenplay, Sorkin, you know, he the way he writes it, the dialogue in the film is great. I, I think it's easy to latch onto the dialogue and follow along with everything when it's being said. But Fincher's editing and cinematography, his teams that worked on these parts of the film, those they they had such a they had to do a ton of heavy lifting to make this. Mo, you know, it's a kind of a stage play, right? Like, there's no big action set pieces. There's no chase scenes. Uh, they had to create a narrative they had to edit a film to be dramatically, you know, engrossing uh in and, and arrange the scenes in a structure that feels it, it's propulsive, it's energetic and yet it's all just talking. And I don't think I've ever seen a movie like this that is so so quick, so fast-paced and it's like what, over 2 hours long and it's just people talking. And yet, you can't look away. You can't, you know, withdraw yourself from this movie at all because it is so well edited. Because the the cinematography, the way we're sh- shooting scenes, the foreground, background of the various characters and their faces and their emotions and their uh, interactions and reactions with each other are just so layered and so multifaceted and so um, just so beautifully rendered uh in, in the way that this film is presented. It's 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 really impressive and it's it's really overwhelming at times even. Uh you know, it's it's I think it's it's an I think it's a big part of why the film kind of stands the test of time that way. And I think it's one of the parts that people don't often cite as like their favorite thing about the social network. You know, nobody's like, "Oh my goodness, I love the social network." You know, the cinematography is 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 off the chain, or whatever the kids say nowadays. Uh, that's definitely not it. But despite that, I think it is absolutely one of the bigger reasons—the editing and cinematography—as to why the film is so indelible. It's so permanent. It's why I think people are going to continue to reference this movie time and time and time again. Uh, for various reasons you know as something to be sort of held up against as something to be uh, aspire to and um, that all kind of a lot of that boils down to editing and cinematography, which means best special effects two thousand and ten belongs to inception I would say you know inception uh, is such a it's such a powerful film it achieved a lot it left such an imprint on the cinematic landscape uh, what you know between the score between you know the way the trailers were cut uh, but uh, between a variety of different things uh, that that continue to live on in film now and part of that is the visual effects some of the like bending the entire cityscape uh when Ariadne and Cobb are are testing out um within inside his within his mind you know the the mirror scene later on in that the mirror moment later on in that same scene uh the the um the hallway fight that from with Joseph Gordon-Levitt all of these things kind of combine to to create this world that, you know, it really feels like they're in a dream, it really feels like they're invading other people's dreams, and that's something that I, I, you know, you tell me that without having seen Inception, I'm like, well, how are they going to pull that off? How are they going to make me believe that they are living people occupying, you know, occupying somebody else's dream world, and, and yet, oh my goodness, you know, say whatever you want about nolan but gosh the guy uh, he doesn't know the meaning of of you know out of reach and and he can he can everything feels like it is within his his wheelhouse to pull off uh so visually i think inception is absolutely stunning uh animation whatever film editing i don't know if it's quite as good as some of the other films on this list the editing um but it is very, very close, and one of the reasons for that, and this is a big you know positive for all of Nolan's films is they deal with they they kind of require exceptional editing. you know you're looking at Dunkirk where you're supporting three different time narratives you're looking at memento where it's shot in reverse, and you look at Inception where it's shot with layers you know you get to the end of this film and you've got you know, these four characters on like the fifth incepted dream in the world. I don't know, fourth or fifth or sixth even. And you have to edit between all these layers to show that, okay, this person is just about to hit the water and, and wake everybody up here just as this person's about to do this, as this person's about to do that, as this person's about to do this, and you editing them all together and it's this instinct, you know, it's this thing where he has to kind of line everything up to happen simultaneously. But they all have to be staggered just enough so that one happens after another. And it's done so well that I, you know, watching those, that sequence, I always forget that the second layer, which I believe is in the van, isn't like the main world, isn't the real world. We spend so much time in this movie within dreams that... I don't ever, you know, you forget that there's like, you know, half a dozen scenes that take place outside of dreams. Uh, You know, there's 40 minutes probably of this movie that aren't in dreams. And you spend the last hour of the film in dreams. And perhaps, you know, maybe it's all a dream, you know, when you get down to it. But it's so fascinating. It's so breathtaking the way he's able to combine all these different... Uh, Tears of Inceptions into this movie, and for me, I, it comes out so clean. It comes out easily to decipher, uh, and that's a huge, huge credit to the editing team. And that's not even to mention the cinematography. You know, getting some of these visual shots. Uh, you know, there's a, the I mentioned the mirror shot. Man, the cinematography in that it looks amazing. All these shots look great. Uh, you know the way the camera swivels at that point where they do the um the constantly upward stairs uh in a in a square shape, you know the way that you know we get the you know we go through a variety of different landscapes we you know we go through the city, we go through um, like a snowy mountain uh you know the the film has to contend with all these different um locations and still feels like the same film still feels like you know we're watching. Uh, you know, we're still getting these in, interesting and unique ways of showing us uh, these scenes. You know, the hallway fight scene. Everyone points to that scene as one of their favorites of the movie, and you know, it's it's great. It's it's incredible, and you know, visually, it, it's wow. And then you know, how he gets the shots from within there uh, are also it's it's just you know, I think Nolan. Excels at, no, at at how he Depicts a film And uh, Inception might be um, The best example of that So, best special effects 2010, Inception Best special effects Whew, Here we go Which brings us to Best original score And the nominees are Clint Mansell, Black Swan, Randy Newman, Toy Story 3, John Powell, How to Train Your Dragon, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross for The Social Network, and Hans Zimmer for Inception. I gotta preface this, I gotta say this every time. Of the categories that I give give awards to of the films that I talk about of all these elements of all the you know visual effects animation sound editing cinematography all these things score is by and large the aspect of film that I am the least well versed in it is my least experienced uh, aspect of the movie of movies and as much as I'm, you know, I watch all these movies. I hear all these scores. You know, I can, I can tell when music is too loud. I can tell when the music is too doesn't fit. But from a you know best score standpoint, it is not easy for me to discern that. Uh, especially only watching movie once. I don't listen to scores on their own. I don't have that interest. I you know I've never. I think a couple of times I've like I when Moana came out, I downloaded Moana's soundtrack, and it included uh, after the actual songs in like the first twelve tracks or so. It includes the score and all the different tracks of the score uh, in the second half, and yeah, I recognize it. I get it. I, I feel like I'm in the movie still, but I just I don't connect to those things at all. Which I think is 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 strange. You know, I, I'm very much a... I really enjoy music a lot. But the score of a film... I like music, but I like music with... I like songs. I don't like, like, instrumental stuff quite a lot. Quite much. Quite a, at all. But we gotta do it. We gotta talk about score. And I will try to not embarrass myself. So, number 5 number 5 best score for me from 2010 is Clint Mansell for Black Swan. The score in Black Swan is feverish. It's it's very much trying to give you this this hazy, like I kind of mentioned before, this this hazy uh, you know, shaky mental state that Portman's character is in, and I think, um, you know, as much as that element relies on the way the film is shot, the way that Natalie Portman's performance uh, exemplifies that um, state of mind, the score and the music is probably the more important element to achieving that goal you know, it it has to convince you. And I, I think it has to do it without being visual. I think when you see something, it, it's very easy to think of it like, uh, oh man, well, obviously lightsabers aren't real, but I can see them. Like, I know they're not real, but like, I know that's an effect. I think there's a lot of things when you watch a movie, oh man, Thanos just, you know threw a moon at somebody And like it looks great And no matter how realistic it looks You know in the back of your mind That it's not real That didn't happen It couldn't possibly happen But I think when you hear something I think your ears are easier to trick Than your eyes I think when you hear the score uh, ramp up When you hear the the layers of the, of the instrument's you know combine in a way that convinces your convinces your ears and ultimately your mind that like oh my goodness this is this character is out of control there there's nothing that can stop her she's she's you know you you can't restrain her she is she's just out of her mind she's insane she's crazy and she's losing everything and i think the score works so well to Achieve that Uh, effect In Black Swan And While I, th- as and as great as I think it did, As great as I think it does that Um, it's still fifth For me For the simple reason that It looks More, it, it, it acts more It's a very I kind of think of it more like a one trick Pony In that regard Um I think it's going to be this. I think I I wish it had a little more scope. I think it had a little more breadth. And and like the film itself is great. I I love the way the film approaches things, but it is a very, in my opinion, kind of a narrow film in that regard, which is, you know, what you kind of get when your film is primarily a character study. Uh, And there's nothing wrong with that, but it just. You know it limits aspects of the movie, and I think in one in this instance, it limits the score to simply being having this one function. And as great as it is at that function, it is always at the end of the day a single function. So number five is Clint Mansell's Black Swan score. Number four is John Powell's How to Train Your Dragon. How to Train Your Dragon, a, a fantastic trilogy that has a lot of highs uh in it in it from start to finish and none are higher than the first film which a little bit of a rocky like opening few minutes but once you get through the setup it becomes a breathtaking visual feast and while I don't think the animation in this is as good as it is in Toy Story 3 uh, and I would say it's probably on par with Tangled. A lot of the film relies on the visual in conjunction with the score. Um, from when they're flying, when he when Hiccup flies on Toothless for the first time, uh, to the confrontations, to just the you know the, the discovery. You know, a lot of this film is discovery and, and learning and. and and growing as you know particularly for Hiccup as a character and I think seeing that progression and, and the score does such a great job accompanying that and it works on a lot of different levels when you um, have those those moments when within the film you know of elevating not just the characters and not just the moments but the world I think in general you know you get the sense of you know like this is a you know maybe obviously you know it's an animated film it doesn't take place in the real world it's fantastic elements there are dragons but i think the score does i think does it's it's best work when it is kind of stripping all of those aspects down to just character and it's not it's i think <laughs> because I'm not as well versed in, in like listening and, and talking about score, I think I always end up attributing such lofty aspects to them and I don't think that I'm wrong in attributing those things but I, I guess I don't quite ex- have the uh, the expertise to really go into those in more detail. but looking at it for me, it's you know when I say stripping like the score strips the film bare, I think you have this asp- this element of, you know, this is a movie that could very have easily been something like, um, I don't know, just like any of the Pick Your Poison, uh, a DreamWorks film that just did not do well, or, you know, these, these really crappy, um, a lot of the crappy Illumination films that have come out lately. But it cares about the people in it, and I think the score helps us care about them. And I think the score tries to, you know, is more focused on the characters than it is on the world, than it is on on the the narrative, than the the drama. It's playing to the characters. And I think that is where its strengths lie. And that's why I think John Powell did such a great job with this score. So number four, John Powell, How to Train Your Dragon. Number three, best original score, is Randy Newman's Toy Story 3. I mean, Randy Newman. He He's he's fantastic He's made some fantastic songs Some fantastic scores in his day It's hard to deny How talented the guy is And um, You know, Toy Story 3 I think he, He's got You know, a lot of groundwork Laid out already from the previous two films That he was able to build upon And I think he does that in interesting ways I think he's able to kind of layer new things on top of the original, you know, two film scores, and and give us, you know, additional depth, which is kind of how the film itself works, you know, it takes all these original characters that we're aware of, that we're familiar with, you know, gives us a couple of new interesting ones, but mostly uh, it, it it builds on themes that we're familiar with from the previous two movies, and I think the score is a reflection of that, and the score, the score amplifies that, and gives it ...its strength and gives it its, its, gives it its power. Um, I think that is both its biggest strength and its greatest weakness... Uh, ...or I guess not necessarily weakness, but flaw... ...in that it does feel a tiny bit recycled. And I, I don't think that's inherently a problem. I just think it's not a positive. And so as much as I think it improves upon these... Uh, ...not necessarily improves upon, but uh, for example... You know, um, reroutes maybe the right word reroutes the the scores from the previous two Toy Story movies in ways that give it a different perspective. In this one, uh, I, I love that. I think that's a great way to approach you know scoring a sequel, scoring you know a full trilogy. You know, you give you start out with this baseline, and then you know as the film adjusts, as the characters. M- Morph into one thing or the other You allow that score to follow along with them And I think Newman did a great job With the Toy Story scores in that way And in letting it shift as the characters shifted And I think Toy Story 3 is a great example Of how he did that as well So that's number 3, Toy Story 3 Just like special effects We come down to our top 2 of Social Network and Inception And in this instance The runner-up for Best Original Score is Inception. I think Inception's score uh, from Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Nope, from Hans Zimmer. Reznor and Ross did Social Network. Hans Zimmer's Inception score is iconic. Uh, I think it's going to be remembered much longer than Social Network's score. I think it's going to have a greater impact. uh, and I think it already has. I think you see it all the time—the boom sound, uh, you know, these big bombastic noises that just seem to permeate every film. It almost nowadays, you know, a, a lot of that can be traced back to Inception and Hans Zimmer. But I don't think it's the better of the two scores. I think. It's the louder one. I think it is the one that uh, more people will think about. But I think it is the slightly, slightly, slightly weaker of the two. And I... what, You know, it's always that issue where, like, something a film does, and it does it really well. uh, You know, and it seems like uh, Nolan is, is, you know, kind of the one behind a lot of these things. You look at The Dark Knight. Nolan created this gritty superhero movie that a lot of films since then have tried to replicate, uh, particularly DC films, and have failed to do so, because they don't approach them the same way, it's also not a novelty anymore, and they don't treat the characters with the respect that Nolan had for Batman and his uh, cast of, of, of characters. And so, <clears throat> it almost seems like it retroactively damages the original film that kind of pioneered that route, and i think the same is true for inception and it's and it's score where i think the score works so well in inception this bombastic these you know noises fit this film so perfectly and as good as they may be in other films i don't think they ever quite reach the same levels that they do as as they do in inception and so you know we get all these bombastic uh, scores in future films and they kind of revolt Revert back to Inception is like, well, this is the this is the culprit. This is the one who did all who who caused started the issue. But I think it's often un, underreported how effective these elements are in the film that started it all. And I think Hans Zimmer's score in Inception is incredibly effective and incredibly uh, well done for the film it was intended for. So number two, runner-up, best original score is Hans Zimmer's. Inception, which means the winner after two runner-up finishes already uh, tonight is finally The Social Network. Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross uh, work together on The Social Network to come up with a score that is so multifaceted. It has some elements of this sort of bigger, noisier uh, Sounds that you might hear in an Inception soundtrack. It does have those quieter, character-driven moments, like you might hear in How to Train Your Dragon. It builds upon previous things that we've seen, that I've you know that we've had in in previous Attica- uh, Ross and, and Resner scores, uh, like say Toy Story three. You know, it takes a little bit of everything, and it manages to mesh them all together to create some and a, a very very smooth and Undulating score that follows the trials and tribulations of um, Mark Zuckerberg and Jesse Eisenberg's Mark Zuckerberg in *The Social Network*. You know, it's a score that keeps you on your toes. Uh, It's part of you know. I talked a lot about the cinematography and the film editing and and the way that the film keeps pace when it's simply just dialogue. And the score is another component of that, where it has to kind of trick you again into, you know, feeling this rush of adrenaline when relatively nothing is happening. And I think that's so clever and so difficult to pull off. And, and you know, I, I they do it, though. I think Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor create a, a fantastic score that complements not only Sorkin's dialogue, not only the performances from Eisenberg and, and Andrew Garfield and Justin Timberlake and so on and so forth, but um, give us and kind of combine to form this this sort of beautiful film that could absolutely be a stage play, but isn't because of all these individual elements working so well together to elevate it to the status of a film, to give it that cinematic feeling you know you have the huge performances you have the brilliant editing the great cinematography and then you on top of that you have the the clever and interwoven score that connects every other component of the film love the score for the social network uh, my favorite original score the be- uh, my best original score from 2010 Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor um which is the third, count it, third nomination for Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross uh, in this category, in this decade, but their first win. It is their first win. So, moving on to the next category. We're going into a big one. One of the acting categories now with best supporting performance. Uh, if you're not familiar, I um I do not. Oh, I did make a note here, didn't I? Huh. Uh, never mind. Sorry, uh, I don't separate gender in my performance categories, um, but I do make them bigger to encompass more people. So for best supporting performance, we have ten nominees. And they are Amy Adams for The Fighter, Christian Bale for The Fighter, Ned Beatty for Toy Story 3, Marianne Cotillard for Inception, Melissa DeSormo-Polin for Incendies, I'm sure I pronounced that wrong, John Hawkes for Winter's Bone, Nigel Lindsay for Four Lions, Jeremy Renner for The Town Mark Ruffalo for The Kids Are All Right And Mary Elizabeth Winstead for Scott Pilgrim vs. The World A lot of people to get through, uh, and we will do so Starting with number 10, Mary Elizabeth Winstead in Scott Pilgrim vs. The World Mary Elizabeth Winstead in Scott Pilgrim vs. The World is I, I think just a lot of fun um I, I i really enjoy i like her as an actor just in general and i think scott Pil- you know she's playing a very generic manic pixie dream girl in scott pilgrim versus the world but you do get enough flashes i think from her in a lot of different areas you get uh you know when she fights she kind of take takes scott's um Place and fights one of the evil axes uh, for him and with him. Uh, she gets to be this aloof person, but you can. I think it's it's the strength of Mary Elizabeth Winstead that you can feel within you know Ramona that as much as she's kind of just like Ugh, I'm so cool vibe, there's a lot more going on in, in underneath. You know, when you get those kind of smaller moments with her, when you see her in uh you know, interacting with these various exes, when you see her interacting with um, you know, uh uh Jason Schwartzman or uh Brandon Routh and, and so on and so forth, you know, you get these you can there's so much going on under the surface, and I think she does so much great physical, emotional, facial work in this film. Uh, that it elevates that performance to a lot more than just your standard manic pixie dream girl and um very impressed i I think the cast itself uh, across the board is is a, a lot of fun and winstead seems to be one of the ones having the most fun uh probably not the one having the most fun uh but i think she just she does a great job she's you know, the relationship her character has with Schwartzman, with, uh, with Gideon, with, uh, with Scott Pilgrim, with Knives, with, you know, the rest of the band, with, you know, this, that, and the other, all the evil axes. You know, she has so many different avenues to work off of, and uh, she's game for all of them. So, love Winstead in this film. Uh, love the film. Great film. Number 10, Scott Pilgrim versus the world, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Number nine. <clears throat> is the name I'm not sure I'm pronouncing correctly, uh, Melissa desormo palin from Incendies. So in Incendies, uh, she plays Jean, G G Gian, uh, the female twin of the film. And I, one of the things I struggled with was uh, you know the lead and supporting classifications for this movie and. As much as she is one of the characters that kind of bookends this film, I really feel like it's her mom's film. It's her mom's story. She's the one, you know, she wrote the letters. She's leading her kids on this journey, on this discovery. And ultimately, uh, you know, I find that she is the lead, for sure. And the question was whether or not her daughter was the lead. Her son definitely isn't. Um, And ultimately decided that she would be supporting so, you know, that and that that in and of itself. Uh DeSorma Pullen is so reactive and you know her part is not huge and it's not, you know, she not isn't the driving force of this movie. Like I said, it's her mom. It's her mom's story, and, and so it's just kinda uh Gian is just following the breadcrumbs and reacting to this. New piece of information. This new piece of information. This new piece of information. And her face is so emotive. It's it's so brilliant in the way that she can respond to things. You spend so much of this film listening, so much of it. And then when you do get those sparks of you know yelling at her brother, uh, freaking out about a revelation, you know engaging with these people, these strangers, you know, at various, at various points in the film, it gets to be and it feels like it is so. Uh, powerful because she's been restrained for so long and she's so effective in that regard too I think she does such a great job of balancing the two sides uh, I was really really um, impressed by her performance in the film and uh, couldn't I couldn't avoid getting her in this list I, I had to get find find room for her and I did at number nine number nine Best supporting performance, Melissa DeSormo Pull in. Really sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. Number eight. Number eight. Is Jeremy Renner for the Town. The Town. Um, so this movie is one I liked, I really enjoyed when I first watched it. I, I liked the aspect of it, I liked the direction it took. I thought you know, this is a really interesting direction uh, avenue for Ben Affleck to explore. I, I thought he does a good job of the direct with the direction of the film, uh, the writing. He languishes in a lot of the fe- parts of uh, of a heist movie that a lot of people skip over, and I think he does it to great effect. But nothing was more impactful from this film in this film for me uh, than Renner's performance. You know, I like Renner. I think he's a good actor, but I don't know that I'd really seen him excel and and go above and beyond uh, until this movie, and and you know maybe that's just you know me personally, but I, I until this performance he was kind of I don't know it was a little ho oh, I, I want to say he was a little ho hum, but that's probably an exaggeration in the opposite direction. Regardless, I think this one really jumped out at me uh, due to Renner's performance, his relationship with Affleck and Rebecca Hall, and, and the way that dynamic plays out throughout the film. It's it's scary. It's it's dangerous, and you know Renner. You know you look at all, of the, all a lot of the movies he's in, and he doesn't play that type of character too often. And this one is one where he really gives it his all. He really goes for it here. And I think it rewards him so much. It, it's such a huge payoff to his 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 skills and his abilities. Um, I really like Renner. I think he and and ultimately Rebecca Hall are the two um, pillars holding this film together. Uh, Affleck is good, but I, I think he's a, a, a substantially distant, you know, third in this movie, if not further. Back down the list, um, but man, I, I love Renner, and I, I think he's a great does a great job in the town. Love him in this movie. So, number eight for best supporting actor in 2010 is Jeremy Renner in the Town. Number seven, we go to Inception for Marion Cotillard. Marianne Cattelard, oh man, Uh, one of my favorites, I think she's just so great, you know, this is the third nomination that I've given her, uh, second nomination as a supporting performer, and in a cast like Inception, with Joseph Gordon-Levin, and Tom Hardy, and Ken Watanabe, and Leonardo DiCaprio, and Killian Murphy, uh, etc, 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 it's so tough to differentiate yourself, you know, Um, Ellen Page Keep going, keep listing people Um, It's so hard to separate yourself From the rest of the cast And I think two people Really elevate themselves And make themselves known Beyond the ensemble And that's Tom Hardy and it's Marianne Cotlard Tom Hardy was absolutely a consideration For a nomination this year Ultimately I think his role is just too small And lacks enough dimension To really give it for for Hardy to really give it, you know, enough to get it over the top. And I don't think Codlard has the same issue. I think her role uh as separated from the cast as it might be, you know, since it's primarily her interacting with uh Cobb and in Cobb's mind, but man, every flash of Codlard we see on the screen, it becomes the passion that she has for this role is so enormous. She's giving it so much energy. She's giving it so much, in some cases, danger and violence. You know, when you know she attacks Ariadne in Cobb's mind. Every scene that she shares with DiCaprio, you know, as great as DiCaprio is as an actor, in this, even in this movie, I think Cotillard is just so far above him. Uh it's it's really astonishing that, you know, but she, she has to be. She has to be the linchpin of this whole film. She is the driving force in all of the actions Cobb takes, and all of the actions he takes influence every other character in the movie. So she is the linchpin. She is the you know, you withdraw her from this movie and everything falls apart. And so she has to be perfect, and I think she is, she is so good in this movie. Um and yet, she's only 7th. Like, it's crazy. I, I do these lists so often. And, you know, I, I get down to you know the nitty-gritty. And, you know, the first pro- part of the process is determining, you know, getting the list down to, say, like a short list of 15 people. And then I'm like, all right, who do I have to cut out? Uh, you know, I love all these performances. I love all these actors. And it's so agonizing to remove anybody. and And yet, you know, you kind of have to. And so even... For her only to make it seventh is is kind of kind of crazy, uh but that's just that's where I'm at. That's where I'm at for Mary Cotillard. Number seven: best sporting performance in 2010 for inception. Number six, we go to Nigel Lindsay in Four Lions, and uh, I can't recommend this movie enough. It is so enjoyable. Somehow, again, terrorist movie, so enjoyable It's so funny And the best scenes in this movie The best vessel for the dialogue in this film Absolutely runs through Nigel Lindsay He is so perfect He is so full of himself He is so overconfident He is so idiotic And he plays all aspects of it Perfectly he he just he manages To Create his character Is so phenomenally Stupid And yet he's So confident about everything He's doing he comes up with a variety Of different plans and strategies That he wants to enact and they're all Terrible and he's so excited About all of them and just, just Watching him on screen he steals this movie Top to bottom The best scenes are him and Riz Ahmed, and Riz Ahmed is kind of playing a straight man in the film, uh, and Nigel Lindsay is just poking at him and 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 poking at him, and, at him. and it, it just it, it's it's brilliant. I, I think it's absolutely absolutely brilliant what he does with this character, and I think without Lindsay, uh, this film suffers a great deal. And I think uh, I don't know. I wouldn't go so far as to say it couldn't work is as intended because I think I think the screenplay is strong enough that anybody stepping into this role could have you know it would have been a good movie but I think Lindsay man he elevates this film and I think you know that is what you need and and so so impressed by him Nigel Lindsay Four Lions my number 6 best supporting performance into the top half of these of the list we go with number 5 Ned Beatty Beatty, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Ned Beatty for Toy Story three. Now, Toy Story three has a ton of voice actors in it. A lot of people to choose from that could have taken this spot. And I guess, I guess, not everybody would have been fifth, but a lot of people that could have had a slot uh, in this category. Um, I considered, uh, uh, you know, I considered uh, Buzz and, and a lot of other characters, but. Keaton even, but ultimately, I think Beatty's performance as, uh, of Huggin' Bear is so much more than the character itself, uh, he, the character, and I think he's one of the weaker villains that, quote-unquote villains, that Toy Story has had, you know, because he's very measured, uh, because he's very simple and straightforward in his, in his, um, Approach to Getting into You know The the sort of seedy underbelly Of things But I think Beatty's performance Elevates uh, The character itself Elevates him enough to the point where We get this uh, You know he, he does have this You know little backstory He does end up as this sort of A somewhat tragic character not completely but somewhat and Beatty's performance he he's just so sure of himself he he's so eloquent he's so you know this is the way things are and this is the way we're going to do things and you kind of just listen to him you know he, he there's no doubt in his mind that everything he that he's in charge that he runs this daycare he runs sunnyside It is his top-to-bottom, and Beatty just, he's great as Lotso. Then, when we get kind of further away from Sunnyside, deeper into the film, into the third act, and, you know, we're at the the dump, you know, we're at, you know, we get through the incinerator scenes, all the conveyor belt scenes, and, and you get to see a little more range from him. I think that's, like, the icing on the cake. I think getting you need that additional side of of Lotso as a character to give him just enough fleshed out uh ability to put him that gets him to this point uh in the list. And I think BD is game for that. You know, he as great as he is in the, you know, sure footed, um, confident side of Lotso, he's very capable as you know, oh man, everything is kind of Falling out beneath me, but I've been here You know, the backstory gives us enough Where we saw, you know, he kind of had to He just kind of showed up, and he had to Take over, and we don't see that side of it But we get that Feeling towards the end of the film Towards the end of Toy Story 3, where like, oh man Yeah, this is a guy who can take care of himself And he's able to And when I say Take care of himself, I mean, you know Screw over everybody else, and like Look out for number one, and that's ultimately what he does, time and time again. And finally, it catches up with him. And what's great is, you know, he's obviously scared, he's obviously upset, he's obviously terrified of, of his future at the end of the movie. But he's also, I don't know, it, it, there's also a hint of of acceptance of uh, they caught they got me in his voice that I love. Hearing that element of And I, I think it's It's a lot of It's a really really strong performance And I I'm, I think it really helps hold together This film uh, Ned Beatty is Lotso In Toy Story 3 is number 5 In supporting Number 4 We go to Mark Ruffalo In The Kids Are All Right I'll say it I've said it before I will say it again Mark Ruffalo is not my favorite actor in the world. I've long not even liked him as an actor at all. Uh and you know, even beyond the Hulk stuff, uh what was I'm trying to remember you know, even like in Spotlight, I was like shrug. Um I'm trying to remember where it was where I first really liked him. And I can't think of what that film was. But Going back and rewatching, The Kids Are Alright, as much as I may not like him outside in anything else, which that's not true. Like, I definitely like him in other movies. But, Ruffalo is so good in The Kids Are Alright. He is just, as a father, but not really a father, you know, artificial insemination donor, sperm donor... Reunited with kids and dealing with Julianne Moore and Annette Benning, all these different people. I think he plays all these different sides of these new relationships so well. I, I think he, he's able to hit them from a lot of different angles and, and I I think it might be this case where I don't know that Ruffalo's capable of Adding more dimensions to a character than are what what's written for that person, and that's something I just thought of, and and maybe it doesn't hold water, maybe it does. But in a movie like this, where there are so many dimensions already, where he's given and provided with so many different relationships and so many different aspects of a character, I think he excels that much more. He. He takes what he's given, and I think he does so much. You know, he can only do so much with it. But if the thing he's given is already so much, you know, he's got it made. He's got it. He's absolutely got it made. And I love his performance in this movie. He plays off so well against all the the rest of the cast. Uh, I mentioned Benning and Moore. You know, the kids of Hutcherson and um, Mia Wasikowska. It's, you know, he he's even as a supporting character, you know, much like Cadeillard in Inception, he is kind of the glue that holds this movie together. He's what everybody's kind of revolving around. He's this thorn that kind of forces itself into this family unit. Uh you know, and he does it with uh with great with great dexterity. Great dexterity. Mark Ruffalo. Number 4 from the kids. Are all right for best supporting performance, so um, number three number three for best supporting performance is winters Bone and John Hawkes. I think of all the people on this list, he has one of the smaller roles uh, it 's an important role, and I think whenever he's on screen with Lawrence, which is pretty much any time he's on screen. He's got, of all the people in this movie that aren't Jennifer Lawrence, he has the best relationship with her. Because I think everyone else, it's very simple. You know, they want to help, maybe, but they can't. And I think it's just a period right there. With Hawks, it's not a period, it's a comma. But you know you know he 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 wants to help he can't but maybe he you know if he if he reorganizes the way he approaches a thing it it can be and i think um it's it's great for him and for his character and for his performance that he does have that malleability to him that he does have this a uh, capacity to adjust um you know his his level of involvement with not only Lawrence but the rest of his the rest of the family uh and, and the rest of the people um around uh this this community, this area. And so when we see him, you know, at first yelling at Lawrence, like, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, stop it, stop it, stop it. You're just a kid. You're just you know, this, that, the other. You know, you can't go there. You can't do this. And she defies him at every turn. And he never really says it, but Hawkes does such a great job of showing how much he is capable of, you know, how much he, he, he respects what she's been doing. How much he respects uh, her, you know, tenacity. And that is the great strength of his performance. That is the great strength of his character. And he's, you know, I don't know... That it's really written that way, but it doesn't, you know, he's definitely bringing that to the table, and that's something that you don't, you know, you can't write it, like, it's not in the dialogue that he respects her, it's not in the dialogue, you know, it's it's in his face, it's in the way he looks at her, it's in the way, you know, it's, the one, it's in the way that he approaches his performance from a, you know, I'm gonna act for this moment, You know, I I support this, but I can't say it. I'm I'm withholding the verbal information, but I'm showing it physically. I'm showing it in my face. I'm showing it in my eyes. And there's so many uh, uh, examples of that throughout Winter's Bone and getting the help from Hawks, you know, throughout it, you know, giving, you know, being that, you know, support reluctantly. You know, is such a fascinating role, and it's one we've seen, I think, a lot, a lot in film. But you know, it's one that I think Hawks has such a great face for, has such a great uh, feel for, as an actor. Uh, so John Hawks, number three, supporting, which, if you're keeping track at home, means that the one number one and number two performances in supporting category this year are both from the same movie. They are Christian Bale and Amy Adams, both from The Fighter. And, man, uh, if if this could be, if I could give this to both of them, I I wish I could. I really, really wish I could. And and I want to. I do. But I can't. I I don't, no ties. No ties. Um, So, number two. Best supporting performance, 2010, for The Fighter. Even now, I'm, I'm hesitating because I... Resolve. Resolve. The runner-up... Is Christian Bale. It's Christian Bale And it sucks I I want both of them to win Uh, You know, you catch me on a different day Maybe I switch the order But Christian Bale One of the best actors uh, Alive, in my opinion And I think a lot of people's opinion Has played so many Fantastic characters And uh, What's his, his name? Dickie in this movie, uh, as Dickie in the fighter, he is, you know, he he continues, you know, he he wrecks his body to get into shape for what his role is in this movie. Uh, his the way he interacts with Melissa Leo and with Amy Adams and especially uh, with Mark Wahlberg is just so exciting. You know, he is the lifeblood of this film. You know, he. As much as we get dramatic moments from all the other characters, and as much as they're, you know, yelling at each other and screaming at each other, I think Bale is able to have those moments, but he also gets these comic moments. He gets these like aloof, uh, you know, loose and, and nimble moments in this movie that really set him apart from the rest of the cast. You know, Amy Adams doesn't exactly get those moments either, uh, but her her thing is a very different. Aspect uh, in the film, Bale gets he gets to kind of play. You know, it's weird, but like he's kind of playing a kid at times, and you know he dresses the way you know you would expect a kid to dress. He you know he he looks the part, he feels the part, and uh, I think it's just. It's so great to see him. He looks like he's having so much fun. He gets to be this big older brother to Wahlberg. And at the same time, he's like a kid. He's like, you know, you can't trust him. You can't rely on him. It's such a fascinating performance. And I think he's so, so great in it. But. Number one. Best supporting performance from 2010. Goes to Amy Adams for The Fighter. You'll notice... I don't even have Melissa Leo in my nominations. Uh, I thought she's good. I think Amy Adams is is a sight ahead of her. Um, But, man, uh, she... The reason I put her a hair, just a hair above Christian Bale, is Amy Adams is the one... Principal character in this film that isn't sort of stuck in this family, Mark Wahlberg, his brother is Christian Bale, their mother Melissa Leo. They have all these sister, excuse me. They have all these sisters. They have this. Their dad. They're all together. They all ultimately encompass a very similar lifestyle. You know, as much as Mark Wahlberg is trying to extricate himself from that lifestyle, you know he's very much entrenched in what that is. Amy Adams is coming at this, this family, at this, this world from a very different point of view, from a de- very different perspective, and it serves her character so well, and it ultimately informs and serves her performance that much more. You know, when she's fighting, you know, it it, it makes when she kind of degrades herself to their level. Uh, you know, when she's scrapping and fighting with the sisters uh, on the front steps, you know it makes it so much more exciting for her. You know she she's able. You know she has to sell that so much more than everyone else, and it, it works. You know she she proves in in her performance that she can handle. You know these these ridiculous people, these this ridiculous family, and then. What we get, you know, as opposed to say um, uh, Christian Bale's kind of childlike elements, we get to see her as a, as a serious person, as a real human being that's not actually in this family. She's not this trailer trash um, whore that they keep think telling her that she is. She's more than that, and her performance exemplifies this and and exudes this this power. And I think that that is, that is what puts her over the top for me And ultimately makes her my best supporting performance for 2010 Amy Adams in The Fighter The fifth category that we're going to talk about today Is best tactile effects Tactile effects, uh, as, I, as I will always say Loosely translate to costumes, makeup, hairstyling, production design, set decoration Stunt work, and actual, and, and sound, uh, editing, sound editing, mixing is more special, editing is more tactile, uh, but I guess, like, the, I don't know, sound has a little weak, loose one, regardless, a lot of a lot of the physical stuff, the things you actually see, the things you know, the, what they're wearing, what they're what they look like. That's not special effects, um, and and what the sets are with the you know the production and all that. So the five nominees for best tactile effects 2010 are Alice in Wonderland, Black Swan, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part One, I Saw the Devil and The Social Network. A lot of things, a lot of stuff, a lot of good good stuff going on here. Starting with number five, we have I Saw the Devil. It's a Korean film, a revenge thriller. Uh, The sound work is good. The stunt work is great. Uh, The production design, a lot of great sets uh, in this film. Um, a lot of buildings uh, between uh, hospital buildings and uh, the houses that uh, the uh, kyung the villain, quote-unquote villain, uh, goes to to, dis- to to dispose of the bodies. You know, he's a serial killer. The makeup and hairstyling, um, mostly that kind of just refers to the way the blood looks. Um, some of the, a lot of the hair, you know, all, you know, the character is just constantly in a state of frenzy of, of running here and there, back and forth and So you've got wild, crazy hair It looks it, it feels it And of course the costumes Not really much to write home about about the costumes A couple of memorable uh, articles of clothing I think there's the um, the jacket that Kyungshul puts on That he steals from the cab driver Question mark? Somebody that picks him up on the side of the road. He finds this really garish-looking um, jacket that stands out. It, but it's it's very iconic in that way. So as you kind of see, like none of these things by themselves are quite exemplary, but I think in a, in con- you know connection to with with all with each other, I think as all the devil does a really good job of, of putting together a very physically. Uh, visceral film, and when you're dealing with, you know, chopping up body parts, you know, you know, there's a scene where a kid finds an ear, uh, there's, there's decapitated heads, and a lot of blood everywhere, and this movie, you know, the, the kind of onus is on the film to make it feel real, make it feel like it's actually there, and it does that, it, it successfully achieves that, and, uh, For that, I I gotta give it credit. I think it's a good looking film. And that is uh that is tactile effects in a nutshell. Number four. Number four, and let me make sure that I have this correct here. Um is Black Swan. Number four. Is Black Swan. Uh, special effects in Black Swan are pretty good. Uh, tactile effects in Black Swan, I think, are uh, comparable, if not better. I think the costumes are fantastic. The ballerina costumes, the you know the the stage costumes, all that stuff is great. Um, the clothing that Portman wears throughout the film, I think, really does a great job of showing off her character and and changing and adjusting and molding to who she is at any given time. Because it's a film about uh, stage plays and, and ballerinas and dancing and stuff A lot of makeup and hairstyling going on in that uh, Between her and, and Mila Kunis And, um, and, and Winona Ryder you know, The three of them A lot of work being done across the, the trio and, and especially when you actually see the play being put, performed you know, While some of the, you know, the wings and such are special effects As far as I'm aware the makeup and hairstyling looks great; it really does. A lot of great visual aesthetics in that regard. Production design is is really good. Uh, the practice studio, the house uh, that uh, Portman lives in—you know—constantly walking outside. We see a lot of great uh, outside shots and the layout of all these things. I, I really appreciate. I think it does it's a great job. Stunt work—it's not the best attribute of the film, but there is definitely stunt work to be had, and I think it goes a long way to making it believable, you know, the stunts that are being performed by the dancers, and, and so on and so forth, Um, good stuff, and the sound, you know, the sound, yeah, the sound, it's not a huge, huge element of the film, but it is there, so, Black Swan mostly hinges on its costumes, its makeup, and its production. I think it uh, is very, very good at all three of them. I would probably elevate its costume design as the best aspect of the film. But uh, certainly no slouch in in the other departments. So, my number four, tactile effects, Black Swan. Two nominations. Three nominations for Black Swan now. Three. Wow. No wins yet. No wins. Um, Number three... Number three for Tactile Effects, the lone nomination for Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. I'll be honest, I'm not a huge fan of this film. I think it's a good movie. I think it's a good entry into the Harry Potter franchise. Uh, It's not one of my favorites. I wouldn't say it's one of my top three Harry Potter movies or anything like that. But... It is one of the only ones that deviates from the uh, predetermined structure of these movies. It doesn't really take place at Hogwarts, and as such, it kind of suffers in the production aspect. But on the other hand, because everyone's not wearing robes, there's a lot more costume variety, uh, which I really enjoy. Uh, the makeup and hairstyling uh, is a little more on display. Uh, a lot more stunt work, I think. You know, with a lot of the. Outdoor type stuff they have to do, uh, and the production design. As much as you know, it's great when we're in Hogwarts. We actually get to you know after six straight movies of being in Hogwarts, we actually get to see other stuff, and uh, we get to get to spend time with other these characters in other places. And I, I like that. I enjoy that. I think that's a lot of fun. Um, you know, it, it's not. It, it, Hallow, Deathly Hallow Hallows Part One mostly just gives us You know, it takes us back to to Gringotts, it takes us to um it takes us into to the what Bill's shack by the shore, it takes us to uh a variety of locations, you know, out in the woods, wandering around the woods, uh to um Thirteen Grimmauld Place, I think thirteen is the right number, uh, and so on and so forth. And I I think, as much as I wish we had more Hogwarts in the movie, from a production standpoint, it still does a good job there. It makes it up, makes up for it in costumes, makes up for it with makeup, stunts, sounds, and uh, earns this spot number three. Tactile effects, which brings us to number two, and uh, I'm sure. They're getting tired of it, but runner-up for Best Tactile Effects is The Social Network. (laughs) Um, Man, uh, film just can't quite catch a break. Three runners-up and one win in uh, five categories. Social Network has solid costumes, uh, not really super exciting. The makeup and hairstyling is okay. The production design. I love the production design of the social network. It is kind of un, under-reported, under-utilized, uh, or under-appreciated, under rather, not utilized. But the, the campus that they, they shot in... You know, the, the pictures they get there within the pub, when they're in the club, the office space, the the legal battle rooms, all these different locations, lots of great production design, lots of great set decoration. Um, I, I really enjoy, you know, living in this space with these characters. You know, these are attuned, attuned to who these people are, and I think they do a great job of cap, um, capturing that in their surroundings. Stunt work. Not not so much, Uh, sound, good sound. You know, um, Fincher's films generally have very good sound, and it, it it manages. You know, it's a film like I said that's a lot of just talking, but part of that involves keeping the film from losing its its. you know, the, the, key the, the Winklevi twins and, and, um, which man, I really should have mentioned those for visual effects. I dropped the ball on that one. That is a good visual effect. Uh, but you know, giving them, getting the sound right in this film is very important. You know, the, a lot of keyboard clacking, a lot of, you know, internet related things, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I really think this one comes down to production design, first and foremost. Why it's this high. Uh, costumes and makeup are, are good. Not, I mean, they're, they're really good, but they're very minimal. And I think that's what kind of holds it back from any getting higher, unfortunately. Uh, so, number two, The Social Network. Which means, number one, uh, loan nomination for the film uh, on the night. Is Alice in Wonderland and it's not a good film. Uh, I rewatched it earlier this year. It's not good, but the costumes are fantastic. The makeup and hairstyling is great. The production design is really, really good. Uh, there's stunt work, there's sound effects, and sound, and like all of that combines together to while maybe not make a good movie, makes a good looking movie. Uh, sans the visual effects which are very sketchy but there's a reason this won two oscars and I think it is the tactile aspects of the movie Tim Burton's aesthetic lends itself very very well to a lot of these uh, technical elements and alice in Wonderland is no exception um, from the mad hatter to alice herself to the red queen to the white queen uh, all of them look great they were they're they're Clothes and hair and and faces And the makeup and and all of that stuff It it just really combines so beautifully Then the production design of the castles And the outside landscapes and all that stuff I'm really impressed by it on a technical level Again, excluding some of the visual effects But, yeah I, I mean, for me it wasn't It wasn't really that difficult. This was one of the easier categories for the winner, uh, and it ends up being Alice in Wonderland. So, congrats to Alice in Wonderland winning its only nomination of the night and uh, winning Best Tactile Effects for 2010. We are halfway through, which means it is time for the Best Original Song nominees. Best Original Song for 2010. And the nominees are... Coming home from Country Strong. After all of my running, I'm finally coming. Oh, oh, oh the world tried to break me, I found a road to take me home. Oh, 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 ain't nothing but a blue sky now. I see the light from Tangled. All those days. Watching from the windows All those years Outside looking in All that time Never even knowing Just how blind I've been Summertime The secret world of Arrietty I- belong together. Toy Story 3. Don't you turn your back on me. Don't you walk away. Don't you tell me that I don't care cause I do. Don't you tell me I'm not the one. Don't you tell me I ain't no fun. Just tell me you love me like I love you. When will my life begin? Tangent. And candle making. I'll stretch, maybe sketch, take a climb, go a dress. And I'll be read the books if I have time to spare. I'll paint the walls some more, I'm sure there's room somewhere. And then I'll brush and brush and brush and brush my hair. Stuck in the same place I've always been. We'll start first with number five, as we've done this whole time. And number five is the summertime the Secret World of Arrietty. Uh Of all these films Of all these songs I've listened to the Tangled soundtrack Many, many times I've listened to I See the Light and When Will Let My Life Begin Many, many times I've listened to We Belong Together a few times I've listened to Coming Home More than once since the film Watching the film itself Summertime from The Secret World of Variety Is the only song on this list I've never listened to on its own Since watching the movie And it's the reason why it's fifth. I I think it's Poppy. You know, it's it's done by I believe Bridget Mendler, and like the song itself is fine. Uh, Its integration into this movie is okay, uh, but it only barely beats out like a third song from Tangled into this list. Um, And I think you know it, it was kind of a coin flip at that point. Uh, with maybe the tiniest of edges going to Arietti, because I think when, the, when you hear the song in the movie It, it you know, in the movie, context of the movie, I think it's a slightly better song than it is on its own And that's kind of the gist of it uh, Summertime, Secret World of Arietti, number five Number four is Coming Home from Country Strong uh, I really like Coming Home uh, I really like. I, I kind of like Country Strong. It's a little bit of a guilty pleasure. I've only ever seen it once, but I really like. Um, why can't I think of her name? Why can't I think of her name? Country Strong. It's. It's uh, Gwyneth Paltrow. I, I could see the G in my head. I really like Gwyneth Paltrow. I think she has a really nice singing voice. I liked her in her, you know, cameos on Glee. Uh, you know, I think her performance in this is good. Uh, the movie is just very not good. Um, it's it's just average at best, uh, and I think the songs elevate it to being okay. And even that, I say a little shakily. Um, Coming home, I feel like is. Maybe not my favorite song from the movie and and maybe not the song I'm gonna to listen to on its own outside of the film, but I think within the context of the film and in the, in the parts of the movie it takes place in and um, the character journey that it is um, mirroring is the better song in those contexts um, that's that I mean that's about as as straightforward as it's gonna be uh, coming home is well done it's a fine song, and Paltrow sings it well, and it fits within the context of the story and helps El Esca, uh, you know, push along the narrative, and that's about where we, it's about where it is. It's coming Home, Country Strong, number four. And this th- this category this year is kind of a trio. You know, the last three, I See the Light, We Belong Together, and When Will My Life Began, were really the only ones that ever had a chance to win. Uh, that was pretty much... Determined from the start When I was looking at this this category uh, This is the f- first category I had finalized Of all of them this year For that reason um, But Ultimately uh, Ultimately This is going to be the second category of the night Where the top two nominees Are from the same film Because uh, Toy Story And We Belong Together Is the number three uh, This year for Original Song and Randy Newman's voice is fine. I think it has a certain cadence that lends itself well to some types of songs, but not all types of songs. And, uh, you know, when you think about this music he did for the first Toy Story Strange Things, uh, is so great. And I think his voice works with that song so well. And You've Got a Friend in Me is so iconic. And, and, and you know, everyone knows that song. Nobody knows We Belong Together, really, Uh, and I think it doesn't work as well with his voice as some of the other music that he's done does. I think um, the song itself and in the context of the movie isn't quite as great as uh, some of the other examples that I listed, and so ultimately it does fall a little short and end up in that three spot for me. We Belong Together, Toy Story 3. Which leaves us with two songs from Tangled uh, So Tangled wins this category uh, And it does so uh, With number two Overall runner-up uh, Which is When Will My Life Begin And uh, best original song Will be I See the Light And I'll kind of talk about them together A little bit, not really uh, When Will My Life Begin Is the opening song It's the the I Want song It's the this is my dream This is you know Rapunzel's goals you know the film kind of just stating like this is what I want to do this is all the things I like and I love that I love those songs I think they're so much fun and I think they're uh, this is one of the more exciting ones of them but you know Mandy Moore's voice is really nice and uh, the visuals uh, the way that this song fits into the movie and then how she acts out all these things like I like seeing it it's a great montage it really sets the stage for her character and so uh, it's really good. Um, but then you get to I see the light, and when you think of the ending of When Will My Life Begin, it transitions into this slower ballady type of song where she's reminiscing and, and thinking about like leaving the tower, getting out there, and that is ultimately the goal. I see the light is the realization of all of that. Uh it it's the it's the Culmination of the whole film, you know, she's on the boat with Flynn. They're looking at the floating lanterns, and oh my goodness, it's this overwhelming impact. It's this breathtaking. This is exactly what I've wanted. I, I this is what I've been waiting for. This is everything to me. And you, I I feel that so much through many more and, and through her. And through her voice, and through her performance, and through the way that the song overlays onto the film, uh, I think it's, um, I think it's the the better song, and I think it's the better utilized song within the confines of the movie. So, best original song, "I See the Light," Tangled, number two, "When Will My Life Begin," Tangled. So we are now six categories in. Four to go, Uh, all big ones As it turns out Next up is category Number 7 Which will be Best Director Big one, Best Director The nominees for Best Director In 2010 are Darren Aronofsky Black Swan David Fincher The Social Network Deborah Granik Winter's Bone Denny Villeneuve, Incendies Edgar Wright, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World Four out of five, whose first name starts with a D Edgar Wright, of course, uh, ruining the combo, combo breaker Anyway, number five, Best Director Uh, An interesting flip-flop from the screenplay Four of the films nominated for screenplay were also nominated for director uh, Four Lions misses the director nomination and Black Swan misses a screenplay nomination this year. Uh, but the winner of best screenplay was Incendies. But number five in best director is Villeneuve for Incendies. I think um, Villeneuve is such a talented director. Uh, this is, you know, hardly going to be. You know, this isn't the only time. This is he's won best director from me before. Uh, and and you know I'm sure he will be nominated again in the future. But incendies of all of his films, I think its greatest, its better, its greater strengths are in its performances. Its greater strengths are in its screenplay, relative to speak- relatively speaking to its direction. And I think uh, a lot of it has to do with the story. And you know Villeneuve's films tell great stories. Uh, Arrival and an enemy, and and um, uh, Sicario, and so on. But they are also, you know, when he's his direction in those is much more visible and discernible. <clears throat> you can see it, you can feel it, and it's not quite as present in Incendies. Uh, it's there. You definitely feel it. I mean, there's a reason he's nominated and not doesn't miss completely. He's definitely, there's great direction in Incendies. But I think it's a small, you know, and and this is back you know, nine years ago. He hasn't fully come into his own yet, in my opinion, with Incendies as a director. But as a film, as a, you know, from a writing standpoint, it is, you know, he's absolutely arrived with this movie. And um, I, I, you know, I don't want to take anything away from him. It just, you know, I think he has much, he is better to come after Incendies, uh, is kind of the point that I'm trying to make. Uh, the direction in Incendies is fantastic, balancing, uh, the two halves of this story, the mother in the past and the daughter and, and the twins in the present, uh, making these moments heavier than, um, even you would expect them to be. You know, there are some really, really heavy moments in this film, and uh, Villeneuve carefully and judiciously decides exactly how much emphasis to place on them. There are some really great moments where he, you know, there's at least one great moment where he cuts out the sound, and it's used to brilliant effect. It, and And I like a lot of this. I like so much of this movie, and um, it all kind of starts and ends with Villeneuve, to be honest. So, number five, Denny Villeneuve for Incendies. Number four. Is Darren Aronofsky for Black Swan? Talked a lot about Black Swan already. Uh, this is its fourth nomination of the night, and um, it, it just it hasn't quite. I don't know. It, it's that it's a kind of film where almost across the board, it's very strong, it's very good, but it just it's missing that extra something, and. Uh, you know, similar to uh, to Villeneuve's incendies, I think there's so many great aspects to Black Swan, there's great moments, there's great performances, there's great, you know, style, and, and uh, so on and so forth, but I think the direction from Aronofsky, and, and again, this isn't the first time Aronofsky has been nominated either, now, he hasn't won before, but this is his second director nomination, and... He's really good, and and Black Swan showcases his talents. He's got a lot of skills as a director. He knows how to, you know, shoot a scene. Um, But I think, at the end of the day, like, this is Natalie Portman's movie. I don't look at Black Swan and say, man, Aronofsky killed it. I say, Portman killed it. And I think Aronofsky was wise enough to step back. He didn't let himself get too flashy. He didn't let himself get too over the top with his direction, with his... Uh, You know, with all the other elements of this film He recognized Portman's skills and abilities as this character He recognized that she is this movie You know, for better, for worse, whatever you may think And uh, better, in my case And uh, let her kind of take it over And so I think his direction is great I think it it complements her performance It complements this story Uh, It gives us this a lot of great rising action, and the uh, the the ultimate fall towards the end of the film is 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 painstaking. It's tragic, and I think uh, you know he does such a good job with with this movie and, and with and and the performance. You know, they say that every award that a film wins can ultimately be attributed to the director, and I don't know if I fully agree with that, but absolutely uh you know he is a big part of why this film succeeded and uh couldn't couldn't not recognize him for his direction in this so number four darren aronofsky black swan number three with their third nomination so far is winter's bone and deborah granick nominated for screenplay as well um falling in third there too uh <clears throat> you know, it's tough to say what wins out And I, I kind of feel like if I'm going to lean one way or the other Whether it's the writing or the direction I'm probably going to lean into the writing for Winner's Bone But I think it's very close I think Granik's direction is shown to be incredibly strong in this film She has, you know, she's working with Jennifer Lawrence Who at the time was not a huge actor, was not a big name uh, she was able to get one of her better performances out of her at the uh, and, and showcase it incredibly well and very you know give her the dimension and depth that she needed. Uh, she pulled out a fantastic performance from John Hawkes and an entire supporting cast, most of which I'm not familiar with. I don't know them um, you know outside of Hawkes, Lawrence, and uh, Dickie, and at the time didn't really know who Jennifer Lawrence was either. So, you know, I think Granick was able to do a lot with, you know, a relatively small amount, and uh, I think that's, you know, it's it's one thing to say, you know, you look at, like, say, in sports, like best coaching, uh, best coach of the year kind of a thing, it's not always going to be the team that won the whole thing, you know. Obviously, it takes skill and talent to win a championship, but, you know, if you're looking at Like the rosters of a team Some teams are going to just do well Regardless of who's coaching them Because they're so talented Because they're filled with this that and the other And it's the teams That weren't going to do that well That ended up doing really well That are often the ones that are looked at For coach of the year And I think coach and director are very uh, Similar positions Um, You know Not to say that Winter's Bone is filled with a bunch of like E-list actors who, you know, couldn't tie their own shoelaces They're obviously all very capable performers Capable team, absolutely But I think on paper, you compare, you know, the cast The production, you know, all the technical elements And people working on a movie like Winter's Bone To something like, say, Inception And it just, you know, the scale is tipped heavily to one side And what Granik is able to do With Winter's Bone and with this team Is... Just really, just rally together and pull off an incredibly, you know, well-made movie. And I, I got I I credit her so much for that. So, Winner's Bone, Deborah Granick, number three. Number two, runner-up, uh, tried to crash the party with all the D names, but could not quite get there. Is Edgar Wright for Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. This is the uh, fourth nomination for Scott Pilgrim. Excuse me. And uh, first nomination for Edgar Wright, as it turns out. Uh, He is a director I love. Uh, I think he's so fun and so exciting to watch. Uh, Scott Pilgrim is just such an enjoyable movie. I, I just... I love... It so much one of my favorites, um, by, by far, you know, it's in my you know it, it's a film that makes my top, you know, three hundred movies of all time, and I, you know, having rewatched so many scenes from this movie in the last couple of weeks, it it holds up, it's still brilliant, and Edgar Wright's direction combining all these different elements, the animation, the comic book style, the video game aspect, the The huge cast of characters, you know, having to shepherd a like basically a two-hour movie that has, you know, eight different major fight scenes, um, and then so forth to give it this, uh, you know, this hero's journey but with a twist. To uh, he just had so much to do, and I think he absolutely ties it all together so well that even some of the sillier aspects, like uh, for instance, the way Chris Evans. As one of the exes is defeated It's pretty silly And yet It's 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 silly, it's cheesy And it's perfect the way it is For this movie uh, You know, the acting is so over the top But Again, within the confines of a movie like this It works out really, really, really well And uh, I think Edgar Wright knew exactly how far to push I knew, He knew where the line was And he came right up to it you know, toe on the line, head leaning over the line, but did not fully cross it. And um, I, I think, you know, it's great. It's it's really, really, really great. And I think Edgar Wright made a damn good film with Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Number two, Edgar Wright, Scott Pilgrim versus the World, which means best director <clears throat> and second win of the night goes to David Fincher for the social network uh this is big he's you know this is the first nomination that Fincher has gotten from me uh and he won you know this is the one two three four fifth nomination for the social network so far uh it's the only film that's won twice so far and every single category it's been in the top two. Uh, what's this this uh sixth, seventh category five nominations top two in each one uh, you know it's it's you know I, I I think it's a pretty undeniably great movie and uh, one that rests a lot on Fincher's shoulders uh, as a director you know he's the one. You know, he gets a great performance out of Justin Timberlake. He gets great performances out of Eisenberg and Garfield. Uh, Garfield, you know, who almost makes it into the supporting category for me. He was very, very close to getting into that list. Um, It it just—it is uh, so much a combination of great elements that it's hard to overlook any of them, in my opinion. And getting them all to work together in conjunction with each other is Fincher's job on this movie and the sound, the production, the costumes the the performances, the writing the you know managing Sorkin's dialogue and like i like I keep saying, like creating in a cinematic event from a film that is talking uh you know it doesn't happen a lot, and when it does somehow it seems to always be pretty great, you know whether it's Linklater's Before Trilogy. Um, You know, it it seems to always be these these great films that are like Twelve Angry Men, like just people talking and coming to decisions and relationships and uh, you know, ebbing and flowing emotions. Venture has his version of that right here in The Social Network, and I think uh, his direction is uh, pretty, pretty, pretty great. Social network best director 2010 David Fincher he wins He wins. It's that simple which brings us to another big big category which is best scene. This is always the toughest category every year for me to handle and uh, this year was no different. It was the final category that I ironed out but your five nominees for best scene in 2010. Are bus from Incendies Ending Toy Story 3 First Flight How to Train Your Dragon Lawyer Up The Social Network And Um Um uh, Oh, I missed I, I edited the wrong thing In the wrong spot And Vegan Battle Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Uh, Yeah, it's a a very weird year for best scene, Uh, but we're going to go through them. Let's do it. Let's do it. Starting with number five. Number five, fifth best scene is the Vegan Battle of Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Let me kind of set this up. If you haven't seen the movie, or if it's been a long time... Of course, Scott going around fighting all the evil exes. In this instance, Brandon Routh is a vegan. He is an ex of Ramona's. And is currently dating... um, uh, uh, Brie Larson's character, whose name escapes me. They're in a band together. He plays the bass. And... Like, the scene starts with, like, they're all sitting in backstage in, like, the VIP lounge. And, like, Knives is gushing over the band that Brie Larson and them are in. And Brennan Ralph like, not afraid to hit a girl, punches her in the face and knocks the highlights out of her hair. So, it's incredulous. It's insane. It's bonkers from the start. Uh, The scene continues so you know he starts to fight with uh, Scott Pilgrim, uh, and then we get then we revealed that he has vegan superpowers. Vegan makes you better. Uh, the fight, you know, he he continues and like he's like it's just easy. He's doing absurd things with vegan powers. Um, they have a base battle where they're just like. Strumming bass chords at each other And this is such an uh, such a One of the things I really noticed Going back and watching Scott Pilgrim scenes Is how perfect The uh, The sound editing is It's so great Um, you know, overlaying the bass From one guitar against the other From the sound effects of everything around them Uh uh to to the voc- to like people talking uh you know or sound mixing i'm sorry I know the difference, and I still get them wrong. The sound mixing of you know combining uh, combining the different layers of sounds together, and like this is it's, it's it's evident in a lot of different scenes uh this is one of the prime examples eventually. Brandon Routh defeats Scott from in the base battle and in the ensuing uh, aftermath he offers him coffee and puts half and half in it in one of them uh which would violate vegan law <laughs> vegan law uh Brandon Routh you know does not fall for the deception but then by not falling for the deception falls for the deception and all of a sudden you have Clifton Collins Jr and um Oh, man, who is it? What is it? Who is the other guy? What is the other guy's name? Oh, it's killing me. Vegan police. This one. Thomas Jane. Thomas Jane. Thomas Jane, Cliven Jr. bust in the door. They read him his rights. It's his third infraction. Uh, chicken's not vegan And um, oh, The other one was There's another one he said And Thomas Jane One of the best line deliveries in the whole movie He's like, it's milk and eggs, bitch And it's so perfect I love this scene, start to finish It's one of the funniest scenes in the movie It showcases the Uh, Edgar Wright's talents as a director Shows off technical sides Shows off a wide range of of performances From Ralph to Brie Larson To uh, Ramona To all the people To Scott Everybody is great Um, Great scene My number 5 2010 Number 4 Number 4 best scene of the year Is the first flight sequence In How to Train Your Dragon This is a kids movie And it's an animated movie. And when you combine those two things, often you get a movie that is a little pandering. Often you get a movie that kind of feels like it needs to bat down, to punch down. And so you have to fill every scene with vibrancy, with colors, with talking, with jokes, with gags. And How to Train Your Dragon, while there's some of that very early on in the movie... Eventually opens up uh, when Toothless and Hiccup meet They have a great courtship They become friends uh, Hiccup helps Toothless with, the, uh, with his rear uh, With his tail And eventually, finally They fly together And the, it's, it's one of the most Exhilarating scenes I've seen you know, I would compare it to, say, some, you know, you look at something like Avatar when uh, Worthington's character flies for the first time in Avatar. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's cluttered. You know, it's not a bad moment, necessarily. Like, it's, it's a pretty impactful moment in the movie, but it's a pretty, it's a cluttered moment. It doesn't just kind of fall apart and fall away behind him and let him experience this feeling as much as it probably should. How to Drain your dragon strips everything away. it is just hiccup and toothless flying through the clouds through the sky and and just soaring and it is so exhilarating. The score swells um you know the music is killing it is just is just infusing uh the scene with so much emotion and so much um excitement and there's no dialogue it's just you know maybe a a a woohoo and a cheer here and there, but it's it's just so picturesque and it's really really breathtaking it's it's so enjoyable number four the first flight from how to train your dragon number three best scene of the year is the bus from incendies so some of these scenes i kind of have to be a little anti-spoilery Uh, in both the titles and in the way I describe them. And so, Incendies, try to avoid being too specific, but again, these are all films that came out in 2010 that hopefully you've seen. Uh, But Incendies, of these five, is probably the least seen of them all. So, at one point, the mother from Incendies, um, uh, Nawal is the name of her character, she is traveling and is forced to kind of get in a bus that is filled with um, people from a fake uh, Islamic state, I believe. Uh, and she to do so, she has to, like, take off her, uh, her cross and, you know, wrap a scarf around her head to be allowed onto the bus. And then later on, the bus is hijacked by, uh, as the film depicts, Christian... Um, militants and so they start pouring gasoline into the bus while it is filled with people uh, including men and women and children, elderly young, the whole shebang and Nawal scrambles to the front door of the bus and she's sitting there and she holds out her cross and she tells them I am a Christian and they drag her out of the bus and she turns around and there's a woman that was sitting next to her at the entrance of the bus holding her son and Nawal says, my my son my son, I can't forget. don't don't make me leave my son it's not her son, but she's doing this to save him, and so she grabs the son, who's crying, who wants his real mom, and Uh, She gets a handful of steps away, and they set it on fire. Now, there's a little bit more to this scene. Uh, This is one of the scenes where the audio cuts out. It becomes very, uh, you know, rooted in the face of Nawal and and the emotion that she portrays and, and feels in the lack of emotion that is felt by the militants around the bus, and it is—it's just so evocative, so painful, so gruesome, so disgusting, and it's so beautifully depicted. You know, it, it doesn't need to. This is a type of thing that doesn't need to be cinematic, that doesn't need to be, you know, beautiful, and it is. It's harrowing, and Villeneuve shows us, you know, everything, everything. Now, like I said, there's a little bit more to this scene that I'm going to leave out, uh, just to leave a little mystery in case you haven't seen the film, Uh, but it gets, (laughs) there's more to it. That's kind of where I'll leave it at. So my number three for 2010 is The Bus from Incendies. Number two. Runner up and uh, man, getting used to saying this is the social network with Lawyer Up. Man, uh, this is a it's close, it's so close. In the social network, at some point in the film, uh, Justin Timberlake kind of pushes out Andrew Garfield's character from Facebook, and by kind of, I mean he connives with. Zuckerberg, And they eventually push out Garfield's character um, And so Garfield is invited to show up at the office And is given and served Documents and uh, a contract Stating basically that his shares in the company Have been decimated in quantity And volume and percentage Meanwhile, everyone else has went up So his stake in the company went from like I forget where it started, but it's down to like point zero something percent. And he's going there expecting a very different a very different meeting. And he's in this windowed office meeting room and he sees I Jesse Eisenberg, Mark Zuckerberg over at his desk. He's got headphones on. And um He, like, marches over, and he's yelling at Mark. And you got Justin Timberlake sitting, you know, nearby. And he's like, oh, he's plugged in. He's plugged in. And Garfield rips, you know, grabs the computer, just throws it on the ground, destroys the computer. And he's like, you plugged in now? And ensues this, like, great combative dialogue between... Mark and Garfield And what I love about this scene And what I love about these characters And the way they're portrayed in this movie Mark Zuckerberg is kind of a jerk And he's mean-spirited in a lot of ways But his personality is very withdrawn He is not a loud person He's not going to yell He's going to bite at you uh, from with from like a withdrawn position he's going to mumble into the into his armpit about what a piece of crap you are and about how he doesn't give you any attention and you don't deserve any of his attention meanwhile we've got Garfield, who is not that, who is very much a hothead, who is very much going to yell at you, scream at you, and at this point in the movie, I think that um garfield's character. Has been slightly, I, I relative to the rest of the film. I feel like he's been a little neutered, and in this scene, he really comes full force, and I, it it works well. One because Garfield gives him gives such a great performance in this scene, but two because you have to believe that he's gone from this character, this guy who is just, you know, he's willing to play ball, and he's. You know he gets upset, but like ultimately, at the end of the day, he's a good person. And finally, Mark has pushed him to the brink, say, uh, and and off the over the edge to where he's he's just like, "Fuck it, you're an asshole. I am coming for you. I'm taking all your shit. I'm taking all your money. I'm going to leave you bankrupt, destitute, homeless, and and just as much as you know he is. And and when he says it. You believe that he wants this, and I think that is why this scene is so successful on top of that you have Justin Timberlake as this peripheral third party who is so smug and and so uh you know has he's got it all put together he's you know he's in riding the high life all those things and um, and this scene really shows. Uh, weakness in him for one, pretty much the only time in the movie, and I like that a lot. I like this scene. I like the way it sets up its characters and and stages them against each other and works uh, in their best interests from a cinematic point of view. Number two, lawyer up from The Social Network, which means the winner, best scene. Um, this is nomination number. Five and first win of the night for Toy Story three and ending. So I said ending, and I think some people might might believe I'm talking about the incinerator scene, which I am not. The incinerator scene is a great scene, um, but I think it's a very simple scene. Uh, despite how much is built up on that moment uh, of the toys, toys accepting their fate and what's to come, uh, I think it's a very simple scene. The scene I'm talking to is when Andy shows up at Bonnie's house to give away all of his toys. And the reason I think this is the best scene of not just Toy Story 3, but of the whole year is because, like some of these other scenes in here, it is a scene that has a lot of different layers to it. On one hand, this is Andy the guy we've known for three films we grew up with andy we fell in love with woody and buzz and rex and slinky and so and so and so and so and so and so so with andy and finally we have him giving away the toys that he has loved and cherished his whole life and even if he's not going to play with them again it you know, you you feel this, you know, you're a kid, you've had toys, you know that when you grow up, you stop using them, they don't get played with, and you want to keep them, you know, you want to hold on to them, and yet you can't, you, you, you don't, you know, maybe you have a younger sibling, maybe you have a younger cousin, maybe you have a younger friend, neighbor, whatever, um, and this scene, from Andy's perspective, is so beautiful, in how it shows him passing away, passing on what he loves to somebody else. You have the Bonnie side of it, where, you know, she doesn't have, I mean, she has tons of toys already. And when you're that age, all the toys, every toy is a great toy to get. You love every toy, you can find a use for every toy, and it's always fun. And so you just see the joy and excitement in her face, And it becomes infectious. You get that from Andy too. He is back in that age. Back in that mindset. We're playing with these guys. And these toys. And all these people. It's so enjoyable. It's so fun. It's the imagination. The world that they create together. And then you have Woody's perspective. Because Andy didn't put Woody in the box. Andy was going to keep Woody. Except... Woody chose to put himself in the box, and when Andy pulls out Woody, which Hubani recognizes, you can see his face, and you can feel he doesn't want to give him away. And he looks around at the other toys. He says, "I'm giving away all you know." You can like see him going through these these steps. Like I'm giving away all my other toys. I'm not going to be playing with Woody. And as much as he means to me And as much as I care about him He he makes this snap judgment She can care about him more And so Woody Who has spent his whole life Caring about Andy Being Andy's favorite toy For the majority of it Ends up Choosing And kind of forcing Andy to give him away in a sense and when you watch these movies, you know, in a way these toys are presented as like parental figures to Andy to the kids, whoever they are and so for Woody's dad, or for, for Andy's dad to be like, you can give up you can give me away now you can move on from me you know, man, that is I don't know how, it didn't affect me as much the first time I saw this when I was, you know, 19 or so, uh, but I'm 28 now, and, you know, I'm maybe act physically no closer to having my own kids than I was when I was 19, but it just, it, it stuns me at the maturity that Woody shows and like that is the thing like the human characters in this scene are uh, obviously you know they have their own things going on they have their own char- perspectives and layers but Woody is the crux of it all and in my opinion committing doing the, the gr- make committing the greatest sacrifice of any of these characters and he's the, the toy. I just I, I love this moment for so many different reasons. And I think it is a perfect way to end this movie. I, having seen Toy Story 4, I do not think it is a, gr- you know, the ending of the franchise. I love Toy Story 4. I think it's a great continuation. It's not as good as the first three, but it's still a good movie. And capitalizing, I think this is a great end to the Andy trilogy. And I think that is the pivotal point It it finishes Andy's trilogy so beautifully and in the exact way that it needed to be finished. So, best scene, Toy Story 3, the ending. The ending. So, man, we've got two categories to go. And since picture is last, that must mean that the next category is best lead performance. And it is. So the nominees for Best Lead Performance are Riz Ahmed, Four Lions, Lubna Azabal, Incendies, Claire Danes, Temple Grandin, Jesse Eisenberg, The Social Network, Ryan Gosling, Blue Valentine, Yoon Zhong Hee, Poetry. Jennifer Lawrence, Winter's Bone Choi Min-Sik, I Saw the Devil Natalie Portman, Black Swan And Michelle Williams, Blue Valentine Number 10 Number 10 best lead performance of 2010 Is Riz Ahmed for Four Lions Talked about this when we talked about Nigel Lindsay I Think Riz Ahmed's great. I think you know he plays the straight man to a lot of other characters in this film, and because of that, you know, obviously he has a different skill set that he has to access. Uh, but he's still an incompetent terrorist in the movie. Like just because he's a serious guy and he kind of has a sense of common sense and uh, a head on his shoulders, he's still very incompetent at what he does. And so it's a tough it's a tough thing to balance between I'm really bad at this, but also like I'm kind of smart and I know what I'm doing, and I'm, you know, a otherwise capable human person. And I, I think he gets that balance well, but I don't think the script gives him as much as it could to kind of push that dichotomy a little further. I love Riz Ahmed, I think he does a great job here. Um but doesn't quite get there for me uh, any more than 10th tenth best lead performance Riz Ahmed for Lions number nine is Claire Danes in Temple Grandin I think this is like an HBO movie that came out I'm not 100% sure Um, I only saw it once uh, right about when it came out but I remember a lot about this movie, and that I think a lot has that has to do with Claire Danes. Um, Temple Grandin uh, is an inventor? Question mark That designed um, more safe and more humane uh, slaughterhouses, which in and of itself is problematic for for me. But the performance and and obviously like the things she did uh, are great relative to what. Was being done otherwise, um, but uh, man, it's it's really all about Danes in this movie. She she gives a great performance. Uh, the character talks to the camera a lot. It breaks the fourth wall. She you know is is just so entrenched in who this in who Temple Grandin was that I you know, that's who it. I, if you say Temple Grandin, I just see Claire Danes. And I think that's that's hallmark of a good performance is uh, supposing the actor for the real person. You know, that's just it's good acting. Claire Danes, my number nine, or my yeah, my number nine for Temple Grandin. Number eight is Choi Min Sik for I Saw the Devil. Joyman Seek, uh, if you're unfamiliar with him by name, he is also the main character of Old Boy. He is one of the co-leads of I Saw the Devil. Uh, my opinion, the better of the two. He has a wider range of performance in the film. Uh, and um he just gets to be so wild and crazy. He gets to go over the top, he gets to, you know, kill people, do crazy stuff at one point, you know, he digs through his own. Uh, diarrhea. It, it's disgusting. It's awful. And yet Joyman Seek is such a fantastic performer that his his as as awful of a person as he is, you slowly begin to like get him. You know? You slowly begin to like, man, like I get how awful this guy is, but he is still He's, there's something about him. There's something about the way he moves, the way he acts, you know, as if there's no consequences or as if he has the last say in what's going to happen. That's how he, you know, he says it multiple times in the movie, like, you've underestimated me. And it's true. He is underestimated time and time and time again throughout this film. And. Yeah, I mean, he's being underestimated in the sense that, like, people don't think he's going to kill them, but, I mean, you, you look at his appearance, and he's, when you first see him in the film, like, he's just this kind of unassuming guy, he just doesn't look like he can, you know, obviously he's, you know, capable of doing a lot of different things, but he doesn't look like he had, he'd have it in him, and, you know, the next time you see him, it's like, oh no, absolutely, this is a guy who... Is in complete control of himself. And uh, apparently everyone else. It seems. So it's not fun. I don't you know enjoy. Like the movie isn't very enjoyable. From that point of view. But his performance is pretty fantastic. In I Saw the Devil. As Chung Yu. I believe that is his name. Might have that. Might be saying it wrong. But something to that effect. Choi Min-seek. I saw the devil number eight number seven uh, with let me see here multiple uh, with nomination number three uh, from me is Jennifer Lawrence for winters bone uh, like I said winters bone is is pretty it's pretty good Deborah granik pretty great uh, writer director for it the story is compelling and it all hinges on Lawrence. She is in almost every frame of the film. She is 17 in the movie. Her character is at least and, you know, caring for her kids, caring for her family, trying to discover and on top of that trying to find her father and what he did and what happened to him and where he is and this that and the other thing. Uh there's a lot. A lot at stake and I you know this is one of the first performances she's ever given and I think she just she knocks it out of the park you can see you know she's trying to be strong she's trying to be brave for her, the the kids she's taking care of uh, who are her brother and sister and yet she's very vulnerable she's very exposed this is a terrifying sequence of events she has to go through and I think she gives one of her best performances in it um, I, you know, I really like Jennifer Lawrence. I think you know, like anyone, she's had some pretty bad movies, uh, but she started out from a really impressive position, and I, you know, I would love to see her go back to films more like *Winter's Bone*, and I think she's got a great knack, you know, for for these types of performances and these types of. Um, characters. Number, what is it, seven? Winner's Bone, Jennifer Lawrence. Number six, the first of the two people nominated for Blue Valentine. So this is the third film that get, got two nominations in a single category. It is the only one whose two nominations weren't number one and two for uh, that category. So number six from Blue Valentine is Ryan Gosling. This film is brutal. It is rough. Um it is edited in a way that is very interesting. It 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 allows itself to kind of weave its narrative through the past and the present. Uh and it 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 it, it gives away it it gives Gosling and Williams a great vessel of great characters to kind of put their everything into, and I think Mich- I think Williams uh, outdoes Gosling here. But this was the film for me that really put him on the map as like an actor. You know, he it's it's the film that like really sticks out to me for Gosling. And I wasn't ever, you know, again. But prior to this, he was kind of just um, the guy from Remember the Titans. And and then I saw, you know, I'd seen him in other stuff before Blue Valentine. But man, he is uh, just so great in Blue Valentine. He gives such a wonderful performance that is heartbreaking. You can feel the effort he wants to put in as a dad as a as a husband, and it just it's so difficult he can't quite come to terms with what he needs to for michelle williams and and to keep them together and it's devastating my number six, Ryan Gosling number five best lead performance is incendies for. Lubna Azabal. So she plays Nawal uh, in the film, the uh, aforementioned uh, character who was on the bus, as I said. <sighs> um, I, I read that Villeneuve had originally envisioned multiple actor actors playing the part of Nawal because her storyline expands multiple decades. But when he met Lubna, he realized, you know, she was, I think, in her late twenties, maybe thirty years old, and she could look eighteen, and they could kind of cover the whole range with her with makeup. And I'm I'm really glad they did because getting to see her from start to finish is as Nawal is really something special. Uh, her reaction uh, towards the end of dis- of finding the person she's been looking for, Uh, her voiceover from the letters and from other parts of the film, um, uh, the sequence of the film where she's the woman who sings, Like all these different aspects of her character, all these different aspects of her are so powerful. And she is such a powerful performer that she gives so much to this role and it receives all of it gladly, with open arms. You know, she's... In in thats in the scene in the bus, you know it's it's a purely physical scene. You know this isn't you know this isn't really a role even where she has to juggle a lot of dialogue, with the exception of the voiceover. It's a very physical role. She's demanded a lot is demanded of her uh, from scenes of uh, rape to scenes of you know the bus to. Uh, When she's older And and, uh, there's the scene around Scenes around uh, the pool And I think More so than Perhaps any other person on this list This year uh, Almost Not quite, but almost um, She's just Infusing this character With so many Powerful physical moments And I, I, I loved it from start to finish Start to finish so incendies, number five, Lubna Azabal. Number four is the other half of Blue Valentine, which is Michelle Williams. I love Michelle Williams. Uh, one of these days, whoa, what did I just do? <laughs> Sorry, one of these days, um, she's going to win the win win a Circle of Film Award. This is her second nomination, and uh, she absolutely deserves it. I think Blue Valentine. Only getting nominations for the performances of its two leads is a shame on the one hand, but I mean this is this is the movie. It is it is them. They are the movie. Gosling and Williams. Everything else kind of second nature, secondary, you know, tier below. It is all about these two. And I, I think Williams a little more so than Gosling is able to you know portray this you know Gosling I think gets a lot of I think his character is a little less dimensional than than Williams is you know I think most of the time he's just he's just searching for acceptance in Williams character he is searching for uh the truth he is searching for uh you know the right path and unfortunately he he doesn't always find it on the other hand, Williams' character is not always doing the right thing. She is a lot more in; a, she's in much more of a gray area than than Gosling. And I think Williams thrives on the shades of gray that her character uh, floats back and forth between. You know, obviously she cares a lot for Gosling, but there's just there's so much more to her than that. There's a much bigger drive going on underneath the surface there's a lot more at stake for her there's a lot more to do to accomplish to achieve and she wants it and it takes you know fighting with gosling and and fighting through her own life to get to the point where she understands what it is that she needs to do and 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 be so number four best lead performance blue valentine michelle williams Man, I can feel I can feel my voice starting to go just a little bit. Let me hold on a second here. Number three. Thank you for being with me. Number three is from poetry, Yun Zhonghi Now poetry. This is the only nomination it got. It's a really good movie. Uh, it's from uh, Lee Chang-dong, who is the director of Burning. Which, in case you weren't aware, I kind of love that. Uh, <clears throat> but poetry kind of hinges on uh, Yun Jung Hee Who as an actor Was Didn't act for about 25 years Prior to this film Prior to poetry And when she did Back in the 80s and 70s She didn't do She wasn't didn't get roles like she does Like Mija in poetry Is such a different role than she's ever gotten And her delicacy in this performance is incredible. I I think it's in, in it just beautiful to behold. She plays a woman with early onset Alzheimer's, but she's become mixed up in this very difficult situation involving her her uh, grandson, nephew, uh, grandson, who is in his own mess, and she's forced to kind of take over for it take ownership of it and the the interactions that she has with all these other characters in this film and it's all shown through her eyes for the most part um you know she feels like a character who is just on the outskirts of of reality due to her alzheimer's she forgets a lot of things she's loses her train of thought she is far more obsessed with her poetry than she is with finding money to to pay off um, what she needs to pay off, not to spoil anything. But at the same time, um, when the film kind of ra- resolves itself and wraps itself up, it absolutely shows just how put together and how intelligent and how smart she is. And I think Looking back at the film with that lens gives you a lot of. It shows that he, you know she. There's so much more going on to her character than you first see, and I I, I really, really appreciated that perspective of it. Number three, best lead performance for 2010, Yun Jung Hee for Poetry. Number two. And I gotta say it again, unfortunately But the runner-up in this category Is The Social Network And it's Jesse Eisenberg It's so Uh, This is Nomination number seven Two wins out of these seven nominations And five runner-up Spots, that is Pretty insane Um Pretty ridiculous If I do say so myself Uh Yeah, it's crazy. Anyway, Jesse Eisenberg, I've talked a lot about the social network already. I won't go too deep into it, but he, I don't think he's ever been better here than he he is as Mark Zuckerberg. He's perfect with this restrained, biting commentary, biting dialogue. He knows his way around Sorkin's words really, really well. He interacts beautifully with Rooney Mara, with... Andrew Garfield with Justin Timberlake, you know, with all these other different characters. Uh, the Army Hammer, who I haven't mentioned yet, who is great in his dual role. And man, Jesse Eisenberg, it his face, he's got this. His the brows of his face for this role are just so perfect to make Zuckerberg look like such an awful person. You know, they give him this sort of in one, in some sense, in some scenes, it looks he just he's just a really focused guy. He's just a really intense, you know, driven character, person. But on the other hand, uh, under different circumstances and different under a different in a different light, um, it's that's not what he is. He's kind of a jerk who doesn't have any compassion. Who do, he's a robot. He's emotionless. He's angry, and I think. Part of that is Eisenberg, and part of that is is the is uh, the cinematography and the way the films are shot. But man, Eisenberg just he he knows how to portray this character and walk that line between jerk and driven, you know, startup, Silicon Valley, college upstart, billionaire type thing. You know, like you can't achieve what he achieved without a lot of success, a lot of skill in a lot of things. But you probably also can't achieve what he achieved without kind of being a jerk and mean to the people closest to you. Eisenberg comprises of both of those things. Runner-up, number two, best lead performance is The Social Network, Jesse Eisenberg. Which means, best lead performance, winner this year, First win of the night for Black Swan is Natalie Portman And, if I am not mistaken that is the, This is the first time somebody has won multiple awards at the Circle of Film Awards Natalie Portman, previously winning Best Lead Performance for Jackie uh, has, has now added a second trophy to her name for Black Swan Within the same decade, she will be going up against herself in the decades-wide uh, Circle of Film Awards. And I i went back and forth between her and Eisenberg a lot to decide this this ultimate, to make this ultimate decision. You know, there's a part of me that thinks, you know, I, I try not to think this way when I rank these, these performances, these actors, these movies, and so on, that... If Jesse Osberg didn't win now, was he ever gonna win? And I I, I can't help but think that, you know, and it sucks because it's stupid. I I, I hate that. And I I know that Oscar voters think that way too. And you look at it the other way. It's like, well, Natalie Portman's already won, but it, it's it's so it's as simple as did she give a better performance? And. As close as I think they are, as tough as it is to have to make that decision, I do. I really do. I think, I told. I said this before, I absolutely think when you think Black Swan, this is Natalie Portman's movie. Start to finish. It is her contending with her own psyche, with the strain physically, emotionally, and mentally that she is under in this performance. Uh, both performance as in the movie and performance as in the ballet that she is in within the movie. It is an energetic film that is is barreling towards a conclusion that she nails perfectly. Uh, you know, it's an unforgiving film. And because of that, it allows Portman to go to a lot of different psychological places with her character. I, I just, I am, Portman is fantastic. I think she gives an incredible performance. I am super impressed by it. And um I can't I couldn't not reward it with a win. It's that simple. Um, Natalie Portman, Black Swan, best lead performance, 2010. Which brings us to the final category of the night. I realize we're eclipsing the three hour mark just a little longer, I swear, just a little longer. Five, five nominees, so it's not even that long The nominees for Best Picture are The Fighter How to Train Your Dragon Incendies The Social Network And Toy Story 3 First of all, The Fighter showing up in Best Picture is kind of interesting to me Because it only got nominations for supporting performance How to Train Your Dragon is also interesting to me Because it only got nominations for score and scene The other three, I think, make sense Um, But, you know, you look at the other films from this, uh, this year Scott Pilgrim, five nominations, missed picture Black Swan, five nominations and a win for lead performance, missed picture Winner's Bone, four nominations Director, lead, supporting screenplay, missed picture Um... Four of the five scene nominees Made it into picture uh, With Fighter being the exception And I, I don't Again, I don't think about it this way When I'm creating the nominees Literally Best Picture is the five highest rated films I had this year So, that's what I gave The Fighter is the fifth highest rated film Of the year It is my number five Best Picture I gave it a 93 I I think it is just <sighs> Between Christian Bale And Adam, Amy Adams Who are exceptional in their own right You have Melissa Leo And Mark Wahlberg who are good Very very good And watching these characters Work and work off And, and, and with and against each other Throughout this film is so 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 much fun It's It's funny it's dramatic it's It's everything I want In a movie like this it's the rare you know sports movie that i don't you know I watch something like Rocky, and I'm like, well, he's gonna win, you know he's gonna he's gonna succeed even if he doesn't win, he's going to succeed and I watched a movie like The Fighter, and I don't even care if Mark Wahlberg is a successful is successful at the end. I don't care about that whatsoever, and I love that because I really only care about him. And 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 his interactions with the other characters. I care about these characters as a whole. I care about all of them. It's not just his movie. And in fact, I care about more other characters more than I care about Wahlberg. I want to see them living and you know, with each other, without each other, against each other, for each other. You know, I love the depiction of this city, the depiction of all the relationships between these characters. I love uh the way. The film is shot. I love, you know, I love a lot of things about this movie. It didn't quite make it into a lot of lists and a lot of nominations for for this year, but that doesn't mean that all of the aspects of it are bad. It means that uh, they are just not quite good enough to get there. But altogether, they pushed it just high enough to make it to number five. Number five, The Fighter. Number four, <clears throat> How to Train Your Dragon. Uh, this one was tough I <laughs> I wanted it, you know I, I love How to Train a Dragon I rewatched it earlier this year Prior to the third film coming out It's still magical And uh, it's still an incredible You know, it's kind of like It's kind of like Spider-Verse was Against Incredibles 2, you know Incredibles two is you know it's obviously a very well made film. It looks amazing. It's got fantastic voice work and great animation. And then all of a sudden, Spider Verse just comes out of nowhere and is ex- you know you're not expecting it to be good. You're you know and yet it's ex- it's insane. It's it's so so great. And How to Train Your Dragon is like that to me against Toy Story three. Now the exception here is I think Toy Story three is better than How to Train Your Dragon, but the fact that they're even able to imagine in the same breath is, I think, astounding. How to Train Your Dragon is uh, the best DreamWorks film that I've seen so far, for me, and uh, it it really captures so much wonder. You know, I talked about the first flight scene, the the way the score ramps up there, the way you know we see the flying you know the the dragons the the creativity behind some of the drag designs for the dragons is wonderful um the voice cast is is enormous and despite you know how some of them are just very small supporting characters you really feel like you're in this world you they do such a great job of um composing the setting and uh you know working uh, on on the way that the film looks and uh then you then on top of that they tell a really interesting story that you know maybe in the bare bones narratively isn't original but feels that way because of the way, because of where it takes place and who these characters are How to Train Junior Dragon number 4 number 3 Incendies Villeneuve uh easily one of my favorite directors. I will go see anything he puts out right now. I'd put him in the same ca- camp as, you know, Nolan uh and, and a bunch of others, uh but Incendies is whew, is just so fantastic. Uh from the performances to the direction to the writing winning, you know, it won best screenplay for me. Um it just across the board is is a very very heartbreaking and beautiful movie and uh, that's pretty much all I have left to say about it at this point number three incendies so it would only be fitting for the social network to fall just shy of first of best picture for me after all these runner up positions it's been put in but it's not Number two, runner-up, best picture is Toy Story three, and I gave 50, I gave uh, the Fighter a, f- a ninety-three. I gave How to Train Your Dragon a ninety-four. I gave Incendies a ninety-five. Toy Story three I gave a ninety-eight. There is a significant gap. Um, I love Toy Story eight. <laughs> I love Toy Story three. Uh, it is my second favorite film in the Toy Story franchise and i think the ending is beautiful the 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 summation of andy's of andy's trilogy is is gorgeous the characters are great the animation is is so striking and colorful and magnificent the incinerator scene which you know it's it you know i cry every time i see it every, life at sunnyside is such a departure from the previous two films and yet i, I can't can't stress like how much i enjoy that i i wouldn't expect wouldn't didn't expect to like it as much as i did and i just kept winning me over and winning me over and winning me over with with michael keaton's ken ken and barbie spanish buzz like buzz critiques about buzz and the way where direction his character has taken since the first movie aside um toy story 3 it's woody's franchise right and this is andy's trilogy And that relationship was pushed and tested. And I think better for it. Number two, Toy Story 3. Which means, with its third win of the year, on top of score and director, The Social Network. Best Picture 2010. I gave it a 99. One of my favorite films of all time. Um, It's currently... My 14th highest rated film of all time And uh, That's, I mean I don't know what else there is to say about it uh, At this point, it ties It ties Mad Max Fury Road with 8 nominations um, And then it ties Her Lady Bird, A Separation, Whiplash, The Master, and War for Plan the Apes with three wins. So, uh, only Mad Max: Fury Road has more wins, and only Mad Max: Fury Road has as many uh, nominations as The Social Network at this stage. I, it's a truly, truly incredible feat. I've talked about it all day, all episode of how impressed I am with um, being able to take this stage play movie and turn it into a cinematic experience, and I'll never not be impressed by that. I think it's a really, really well-made film, and uh, I, I can't deny how imp- how how good it is. It's that it's that simple. So. 2010 best picture the social network uh and that's it that is where we leave off the 2010 circle of film awards a lot of things happened this year we got our first repeat winner in natalie portman for black swan we tied the record for nominations at eight uh with mad max fury road and uh and top of that, social network, every single Category, it was top two Every single one um, You know, so that's a Like You know, I say that it's, you know, a really Close, some of these races, but if they go the other Way It, you know, eight wins, right Like, crazy um, But, unfortunately, it is How it is uh, We had Eight different films win awards. Social Network is the only thing that won twice tonight. Uh, the worst film that was nominated for anything uh, this year was Country Strong, which I gave a fifty, just a fifty. Um, I think that's it though. It's about it. You can so uh, before I before I sign off, we'll remind you can look at CircleFilmAwards.com to find. The, the list of nominees for every category, Uh, when I get a chance, and of course this doesn't come out until (laughs) nine days after I'm recording it, but after my vacation, I will go in and I will edit uh, that page so that you can see the winners, the winners will be posted uh, alongside there, Um, and then all the winners from each category will be added to the 2010's Circle of Film Awards uh, nomination list, Uh, Which will just be waiting for 2019 to add to that. And then I will add uh, any superlatives that are necessary to the main Circle of Film Awards page. Most nominations for a single film, wins, um, and so on and so forth. So, that is it for the 2010 Circle of Film Awards. Thank you. For listening if you've made it through this entire Thing we're gonna be Almost we're gonna be pushing three and a half This time uh, If you'd like to find more episodes uh, In case this isn't enough iTunes, Stitcher, places where podcasts Can be found and the website as well You can find me on Twitter at Circle of Film If you think I made an egregious Error uh, or if you Want to make sure I caught a film that you think Should have been considered You can find me on Letterboxd at Circle of Film You can email circlefilm at gmail.com You can support the show by liking it, rating it, reviewing it, subscribing to it, or telling somebody about it. But at the end of the day, if you listen, that's the best thing you can do. Um, If you'd like to become a patron, you can head over patreon.com slash circleoffilm, where you, for as little as eight cents an episode, you can have early access to all episodes, uh, including this one, which, as I mentioned, is coming out nine days early. Thank you for listening. And as always, have a week. So long, farewell, i be the same, I know she'll never leave me Even as she fades from view So long, farewell I'll be to say adieu Nothing's really left Or lost without a trace Nothing's gone forever Only out of place So long, farewell Oh, revoir